What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up Ship Podcast. This is Teaching to the Creed, Module 3.0, Credibility of a Chief. Uh, I got to do this one with the ET-1 Naval Special Warfare Tech uh, that I did episode 41 with, uh, Glasses Half Full. If you want to learn more about him and his experiences, go check that one out first. Big fan of his. I really wanted to do it with a first-class petty officer because we're discussing Credibility of a Chief uh, and I feel like our biggest critics are uh, first class petty officers and, and I, he's the perfect guy for it. And you'll see why when you listen to the podcast. So uh, I hope you guys enjoy that learning outcome upon completion of this block of instruction. The student will have gained an understanding of the inherent credibility of a chief petty officer and how being a chief in the Navy differs from being an E7 in the other services objectives. Analyze and discuss the importance of the credibility of a chief petty officer as it relates to the CPO creed. Analyze and discuss the definition of credibility and how it relates to chief petty officers in our ability to lead up, down, and laterally across the organization. Analyze and discuss the unique responsibilities and privileges of a United States Navy chief petty officer. Analyze and discuss the differences between a United States Navy Chief Petty Officer and an E-7 in other services. Curriculum development references were Laying the Keel, May 2019, Navy Leader Development Framework, version 3.0, also May 2019. The non-commissioned officer and petty officer backbone of the Armed Forces book, uh, National Defense University Press. The Blue Jackets Manual in its current revision. And the CPO Mission, Vision, and Guiding Principles. So, uh, like I mentioned, going into this, he was the perfect person for this. We got to dig deep and have a really thought-provoking and challenging discussion on credibility of a chief and also kind of focus on some of those things highlighted in in our view of how chiefs compare to E7s and other services, uh, et cetera. I really hope you guys enjoy this one. I had a, a really great time talking to him. Uh, we went a little long, so, uh, but I thought it was worth it, and I thought the discussion was incredible the entire time. So here we go. Getting into it, I'll do a quick recap of the objectives. So we're going to analyze, discuss the importance of credibility. That's that's the topic is credibility of a chief versus an E7, and we'll get to that at the end. Uh, and then we'll also get into like to defining credibility, uh, discussing responsibilities and privileges, if they exist, and what are they, and then... Uh, analyzing and discussing the differences between chiefs and uh, the rank of E7 and other services, which arguably, arguably doesn't exist, but we'll get to that. Um, so the overview, it's like the, the each section, each topic um, is going to be focused on a section of the CPO created, right? So I'm going to read the first section that applies to this topic. So by experience, by performance, and by testing, you have advanced to chief petty officer. In the United States Navy, and only in the United States Navy, the rank of E-7 carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges you are expected to fulfill and bound to observe. Your entire way of life has changed. More will be expected of you. More will be demanded of you. Not because you are an E-7, but because you are now a chief petty officer. And like I said, it's an excerpt from uh, the CPO Creed. So yeah. as we kind of lace through all these topics, I want to keep it in the back of our mind as like, and it's what we're discussing, but like, is that what it should say? And is that what we believe we're accomplishing on a daily basis? And, and we'll get into all that as well. But so the first one is uh, the rank of E7 carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges you are now bound to observe and expected to fulfill. And then so like, what does this mean to you? And then how does by experience, by performance and by testing play into this? 
Well, I'm going to address the the first one first, or the second one first, right? Because that one to me, I've always read it as being pretty self-evident. It's basically yeah. referencing the process by which you were selected to chief, right? Mm-hmm. You had to demonstrate that sustained superior performance. You took tests, and then you also underwent testing over the course of the season. Experience right. kind of comes into it both ways as well, right? Where you sat there and you know, you had the experiences you underwent during the season and then all of the experience that you built up with, which sometimes it's six years and yeah. sometimes it's 21 years, yeah. right? That led you to this day, you know, the September, ordinarily September 15th, where you're about to put on a, put on a different uniform than you've worn for the previous period of your career. I think the rank of E7 carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges you are now bound to observe and expected to fulfill. That one kind of always reads... It's a little odd to me because later on it talks about how E7s are not E7s aren't chiefs and chiefs aren't E7s. Yeah. Right? How it's this distinct thing. Yeah. Um, and it's like, are we acknowledging that other service <laughs> that, that in every other service E7 is a pretty significant marker? Of Freudian slip, maybe. <laughs> you know, like because yeah, yeah like gunnies. Yeah. Gunnies are platoon sergeants in in the Marine Corps, and then sergeant first classes are pl- platoon sergeants yeah. in the Army. And master sergeant is like the first position of real authority and position and power uh, in the Air Force, right? Mm-hmm. So, are are we acknowledging that that you know, hey, this is the first time where you as an enlisted person are going to be really truly in a position, you know, to have an exceptional amount of power and authority? And that that's something that's common across the services, or are we saying that uh, E seven in the Navy has a special room that he gets to go into and have meals? Yeah, in, I, I, right? I would lean towards more. It was trying. It should have said the rank of chief carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges because, yeah. like, we're going to talk about the difference between or. Mm-hmm. the perceived difference or whatever between other services NCOs at the E7 level and chiefs. But yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's more of like, I think it just should say the rank of chief carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges. You're now bound to observe and expect to fulfill. But like, like what are those? Like, and, and I really, it really irks me that the word privilege is in there outside of a context that I'll talk about. But like, like what are those unique responsibilities and privileges? Like what I mean, am I, it- if I want to be generous reading that, the privilege is one – the privilege that you have kind of is that you're carrying the legacy of every chief that's gone right. before you, right? Like if I want to be really generous, that's what it's supposed to be is like you are being given the privilege of wearing this cover and wearing the – you know, and wearing this uniform and carrying the heritage of every Navy chief that has ever gone before you into harm's way or – Right. underway or simply engaged in good leadership and you know that's your, your privilege is carrying that legacy forward if i'm less generous it's talking about if i'm really less generous it's talking <laughs> about the fact that every chief at my command has a parking spot yeah right? and that's the type and, of crap that makes me cringe but i like i'm choosing to be generous about it even though i think in in real life application nowadays a lot of times it is executed as it manifests itself as stuff like that, like the parking yeah. spots and the like headline privileges for chow and garbage that shouldn't yeah. exist. I mean, there there's aspects of it. Like as active duty military, we have had a line privilege at, under certain circumstances. Like there's, there's aspects of it that certain specific circumstances, I can understand the need for the privilege, but the privilege needs to come attached to some responsibility that necessitates it. Right. 
Yeah, yeah. One of the things, you know, and and man, this this shouldn't be don't uh, don't give up the parking spot sometimes because this is I think right. the third time we've talked, <laughs> we've about, talked parking about spots. Bunch, yeah. But it's like the CMC CO XO, yeah. Those they need they need parking spots because sure. they're gonna have to go off the out of the command or off the ship or off the boat on a regular basis to go and sit there and do meetings, right? You know, because that seems to be half the job. Okay. I don't have any heartburn with, you know, when I, my last CEO, he was at work every day by like 645 and routinely left after 20 hundred. He would have that parking spot regardless of right. whether it had a, a shiny silver oak leaf uh, on a sign. Yeah. And I don't think right? anybody really has heartburn over a command triad having a parking spot. I think yeah, it's when no. you get outside of that. It's it's when you have the the E seven lot up at the, with you know where there's you know some poor E four whose job it is to sit there and turn people around up on North Island, Ew. right? Like, hey, is that real? Somebody, that's yeah, real, man. Ugh. Like literally, you know, oh, that's I gross. go if, if I go up to North Island right now, okay, uh, and I go up to CVN seventy one's pier, there will be the lot that's like right next to the ship. Mm. Okay, that that's like right next to the ECP because there's an ECP to, before you can yeah. get onto the uh, brow. Like they they have an actual like separate ECP with like an X-ray machine and dudes with guns and everything. That parking lot that's right there, mm-hmm. it literally has signs on it saying E7 and above only. But um, the part with whole, the E4 station, because like I've seen cheap yeah, spots, man. but that there's somebody no, patrolling there's, the parking lot. Like a there parking. is there's a dude there's there's some random young young e4 in a glow vest oh, standing why? next to uh, uh hey brother let me finish uh, uh standing next to like one of those little super lightweight like road uh road blocker mm-hmm. things you know yeah, like the, like saw the barriers with the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like 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 the super light barrier right yeah and his job is to sit there and if you will go pull up he you checks your id and if you have a chief, you know, if you have a, you know, a rank of chief or above, or if he recognizes you because, you know, you're like a C- the CMC yeah, or reactor that's... department master chief or whatever, and you have a CVN 71 sticker on your ID card, then he'll move the barrier out of the way. And if not, he won't. That's disgusting. And I mean, <laughs> hey, like, we're not immune from it, man. Uh, it makes center, my heart hurt. You know, the, the Naval Special Warfare Center, uh, they have an area where it's E7 and above or GS11 and above. And, you know, one of the dudes who's waiting to class up for buds, his job is to sit there and check IDs. Now, the reason for that is there's six parking spots right in that in that area. And basically it's, you know, the idea is supposed to be that those spots are set aside because, you know, the the phase chiefs and the civilians that work with them, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to have to run all over the place all all the time. Yeah. Of course, of the day at buds. Like, man, it's the same thing. You I'm know, not like saying a, a circumstance can't exist where yeah. that scenario but, would make some kind of sense, but the yeah, a like, giant parking lot right next to the pier that's probably at yeah. 20% occupancy at all times, and then they station a sailor whose only job is to check yeah. IDs. Come I mean, on, man. Like, you know, I I enjoyed my time as a crank because I had culinary experience. I was like, Spoken oh, I get to food service attendant shit, mate. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed my time as a crank <laughs> because bleep, bleep that out. Yeah. Uh, no, because we were, because I had culinary experience. And so I was yeah. sitting there and getting to, you know, because the CS were like, Oh, you, you know what you're doing with a chef's knife and a cutting board and yeah. you know how to saute and you know, yep. Okay, cool. Yeah. You're 
a very strangely trained CS2 now. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. We're not going to have you smash and trash. Yeah. Right. But I can only imagine the level of resentment that I would have because you know it's a crank that's doing it. Right. Mm. Or you know it's an, uh, it's, or you know Some it's a, super a TAD yeah. sailor. Yeah. You know, because you can also go TAD to security on carriers. Right. So it's a sailor who's TAD to security who went through some level of training, whether it was seaman apprentice a school or the seaman apprentice school or whether it was potentially nuke school yeah and his job is to stand there and move a lightweight barrier out of the way so that chiefs can have convenient parking. god that's you got to think about that as like a meme just like that kid's blood boiling uh, yeah. at like the well, ridiculousness of his lot in life at this moment and i mean you know my thought on that is is, is actually really simple it's a pretty decent sized parking lot if I were to sit there and be in a decision-making position for that, you know what I would do? That would be the duty section's parking lot. Yeah. I mean, that's I, it. Yeah. And, and it would have exactly the number of spots required for the duty section. So yeah. that it's not because yeah. those ones that drive me nuts are it's like they're 20 percent occupancy, occupancy at all times. Or, well, CS2 drives around for an hour trying to find yeah. somewhere to park and then come back down to the boat and finish work. For or the you, day. Like, you, you go over to 32nd Street wet side and literally 95 percent of the parking spots on that base outside of one giant lot that's in the middle of the middle of everything have you know reserved for navsi reserved for lcs yeah, yeah. ron yeah right and it's like again you know i mean some of that's a, a degree of density and the fact that for whatever reason they still haven't decided if they're going to build a parking uh, garage like they have a right. Bremerton. right but uh, it, it, there's 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 ways to handle this that don't sit there and come across as hey you made chief now or you're an ensign and thus you get you know this 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 weird privilege that why like i yeah. mean realistically yeah. you should be there early mm -hmm. like from the get right and you well, know and hey, that's if, like if in practice every day for the last i don't know how many years i've been doing this i had a parking spot one time and it was when i was at the a school and it was almost in the exact same alignment as everyone else's so it wasn't like it was just like to make me feel good mm -hmm. i guess i don't know like i didn't yeah. need a part and there was never the parking lot was never full yeah. So it's like I didn't need a parking spot, but for some reason, somebody put a sign there. But like every boat I've been on, even the last one as a as a senior chief, I'm the most senior chief on board the submarine that's not named Cobb. That's not wearing a cookie. Yeah. And I yeah. don't have a parking lot like and, and I somehow managed to show up to work on time and get everywhere I needed to be and get done the things that I needed to get done. Now, would it have yeah. been super convenient to not have to drive around looking for a parking spot sometimes? Yeah, but it, yeah. it is what it is like. I, and I mean, we, we all have those meetings off the boat or off the, yeah. or off compound. And, you know, yeah, sometimes you're sitting there and you're like, really? Why are so many people here today? Yeah, but it, that's that's how it goes. But, you know, I think that, again, reading generously, it's supposed mm. to be the privileges, you know, the privilege that you have is is also simultaneously a responsibility. And that's you're carrying on the legacy. Yeah. You are called chief. Right. You know, the greeting of the day is something that you have every reason and right to expect on a regular basis. You're going to be treated with more respect than you had been previously because you're a chief. And. Those kinds of privileges, I think, are what it's getting at. And probably there's also some of the, you know, the chief's code stuff as well, right? In terms of yeah, uh, that that little piece of that that little you know sub piece, right? But I don't think that when you have a group of sailors that are witnessing new chiefs becoming chiefs at a, on at a pinning, 
I don't think that that's what's coming to mind for them. Right. I think when they hear that, they are ta- they are thinking parking spots, the chief's mess, coffee mug with your name on it, FSAs. Well, I think yeah. – <laughs> You know, yeah. FSAs sitting there and like doing pseudo officer stuff. And it's I think one of the, the issues it comes down to is there's sometimes it seems like and I think it comes with the change of the officer and its resemblance to an officer's mm-hmm. uniform is that there's an there's this thing of like they're basically trying to assume the privileges that commissioned officers have. And is that fair? No, I don't think it is. Yeah, but I also I, can see. I, but I can see where the where, I can see the where's and why's of how that mindset. Yeah, comes. and in, interestingly, there's some history behind that. I, I honestly, as I was preparing for this, we, we're going to get to a point where we're going to read an article from the 1918 Blue Jackets manual, which mm-hmm. I have a copy of a 1916 version, and it's exactly the same. And so I read it last night, and it's on the internet too. But um, I'll read it, and there's some sections in there that go go beyond that article that it kind of explain how the like the rank of chief was viewed at the time and how it was prioritized and how closely it was related to like a warrant officer position and then kind of mm-hmm. the definition of what a warrant officer was at the time and and then a commissioned officer etc so it's like yeah. some of that is based on it's just like a hangover like just an influence from that kind of stuff but but yeah i think you're right in that like i th- i think they're thinking about those kinds of things i think they're also thinking about like the hey you're part of the club now so that like once you do something wrong you're not going to get punished the same and we'll sweep it under the rug and all those things that you see on the meme sites and on reddit and mm-hmm. and you hear sailors talk about in the smoke pit i think they're t- thinking about those when you say the word privilege which is why i hate that the word privilege exists in that yeah. in that in that context i think you could have used it if you, we had done a better job of of building around that, the explanation. I think you're exactly right. They're thinking of privileges in societal privilege, as mm-hmm. in the way that we talk about, you know, white privilege or male privilege nowadays. It's very parallel to, I think, the way that, and I, I don't think this is a junior sailors, Zoomers, millennials ah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's, <laughs> I think it is a good structure in which to think about it, where what they're thinking about is that, yeah. that sort of inherent to you know to an exterior eye unearned privilege uh that your your rules your societal rules you live within are different now yeah right and there's nothing wrong with i I think there would be less there would be less of perception that if it wasn't for the fact that sometimes the perception is exactly what you just hit on the getting away with violating the ucmj because you you're wearing brown pants and i'm wearing black pants yeah defining credibility that we've got from the from the slide deck we're following along here so credibility from merriam webster is the quality of power of inspiring belief and dictionary is the quality of being believed or worthy of trust which i i mean i like the second one better um but the question being uh how do you how do you build credibility and if you need to pause for discussion here if you're using this as you work through the lessons now would be a good time to do that but we're gonna go ahead and discuss that question first so Posing it to you, how how do you feel that, and specifically chiefs, obviously, or, or leaders in general, how do you build credibility? I mean, to me, the baseline thing that's going to establish credibility and with, with sailors is going to be, one, establishing rapport, right? You know, you, you need to actually have an established real relationship. You're going to get extended by most sailors a certain degree of credibility just on the virtue of that anchor on your chest and your cover. Right. Like 
you know, every sailor officer or very junior enlisted all the way up to, you know, the McPawn and the, and the CNO, they're at least going to voice the idea uh, in public that because you're a chief, you're automatically going to receive a degree of trust. Um, the degree of trust that that is, is going to vary, you know, for me, as I've talked about previously, you know, I don't automatically give chiefs a whole lot of credibility. Yeah. And so, so that relationship needs to be established with them as a person. But the other aspect of it is demonstration of the fact that you, you actually are capable and functional in the area. Right. So I'll give you an example from my last command. You know, we had these two chiefs come in to be trained and, you know, I'm a senior first class and one of these guys, he's a 19 year chief mm. and the other is, it was like a 16 or 17 year chief. He, he just made eight, uh, last year now. And they really had a significant issue with credibility, with community credibility, because they couldn't let go of the fact that they were a chief petty officer first. That was so core to their identity. And they didn't understand that they didn't automatically have, you know, the credibility they might have in their previous job just on the, the merit of their anchor. So you need to, you know, if you want to be effective to me, I think you need to sit there and be willing to understand that you're coming from a place, you know, like in some cases you're coming from a place of deficit, but at best, you know, think that you're coming from a place of neutrality and show that you're trustworthy, right? And yeah. sometimes that means that you, you know, sometimes it means being willing to uh, publicly take it on the chin on behalf of your sailors, Right. And that, yeah. that doesn't mean that you should you shouldn't be getting your ass chewed in public by by an officer, by the CEO, by a, by a more senior chief or by the CMC. Right. Like that's not what I'm talking about. But you should like like being willing to take that hit. That's going to matter. Uh, being willing if somebody needs to have a correction conversation that's senior to you. Mm -hmm. Like, let's be real here. What we're talking about is having a J.O. that is is stepping maybe past their depth. And making a decision and being willing to sit there and stand up and you say, hey, sir, can we go talk or ma'am, let's be inclusive. Can we go talk about this in your office for a couple minutes? Yeah. Right. And mm -hmm. and coming out, maybe you can't resolve it. Right. Like maybe, you know, the sir or the man made their choice. Maybe their choice is right. And you don't have the full insight in that moment. But the fact that you're willing to sit there and stand up and do that. The other big thing, and this is the thing that I think. I've seen chiefs more consistently fail out in the last few years than anything else is if you're in a technical job, which almost every rate in the Navy fundamentally is a technical job, whether it's the, the techniques of naval writing, the techniques of proper cooking and supply management, the techniques of tactical communication or the techniques of ballistic missile or ballistic missile launch or ballistic or anti-ballistic missile, you know, control and launch, right? It's all technical. If you aren't technical, and I don't mean you, you don't need to sit there and have that salty second class level of knowledge the whole way through, right? It's understood, I think, Navy wide at this point that there's a degree to which very, very senior warrants and very, very salty second classes are where the Navy's fully internalized technical knowledge is going to lie. Mm -hmm. But you need to have at least the same level of understanding as your third class does. Right. Right. If you don't have that, if I if I have to correct you and say, no, chief, that system isn't on this ship, which is yeah. a real thing that happened to me <laughs> when I was a third class. 
Okay. Because his last oh, boat wow. that he was on was a, his last boat that he was on yeah. was a, was a sturgeon class. Right. And we were on a 688 and there are engineering systems that are present on that ship that are not present on a 688. Right. But, and this is another thing where the chief's mess as an organization has operated on sort of a concept of, of unity, right? The mm. unity service navigation. I, we've already had that conversation yeah. about, the, about <laughs> that, but you know, but unity is, is more so than I think even some of the other services, you know, the, the concept of unity within the ranks or unity within a, a set of ranks is, is very, uh, is very core to the chief's mess identity. Right. So I knew in that moment when I had to tell a chief, we don't have that system on the boat that his recall, his submarine recall card had been blazed off by his fellow chiefs. Probably. Um, benefit of the doubt, I've been on three different classes of submarines and routinely confuse them. But when I do, I immediately own up to it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. That's not the right submarine. I mean, there's yeah. there's there's hey, there's that. There's also like a bay that was present on that mm -hmm. boat that is not present on a 688. Yeah. Right. Like there's a difference between I forgot that we don't have that freshwater system or where this, you know, where this valve set is right. and adding a bay to the engine room, Fair at point. least to me. <laughs> uh, and, and having a couple minutes where you refuse to acknowledge it. I mean, Hey, like older dude, again, benefit of the doubt. Right. But his brother and his, well, I shouldn't say brother and sister because this is 2004 or 2006 so brothers, his, yeah. his brothers, <laughs> you know, his brother chiefs, they failed him by sitting yeah. there and blazing off that qual card and, you know, saying, Hey, yeah, congratulations. You're requalified in submarines. And to me, there's a degree to which that's a safety of ship issue, right? It's a giant problem. Like I, I can tell you, I got back to when I got to a boomer, uh, for the first time, it's, it's a totally different thing than to a certain like a submarine's a submarine to an extent. But mm -hmm. there's a lot that's different about a boomer and versus a seawolf versus an 88, et cetera. So, yeah, of course. Uh, I got there and they were putting me immediately into situations where I didn't feel comfortable. And one of them was they're like, hey, uh, I mean, I had, the ink was drying on my check in sheet. And they're like, hey, do you want to sit a submarine qualification board? I'm like, no. I'm like, am I even allowed to? And they're like, yeah, any submarine qualified e6 and above forward or whatever and i'm just like that's insane i'm like no i'm not i'm not sitting aboard i'm like i barely know how to get off the submarine right now i'm like no that's like for me to sit there and ask them questions and evaluate their level of knowledge on a platform i'm barely familiar with is absolutely absurd to me um and i think like that whole thread that uh, the, the for me that mentally ran through what you the whole thing Every story you just told was like a lack of humil humility. Yeah. Where in and those situations when those like when those chiefs checked in to be trained by you or, or in this situation in particular, it's like they had approached that situation with humility and said, you know, oh, hey, ET1, you're the expert. Teach me like I'm I'm a sponge standing by to standing by to receive. Yeah. Like I'm not compromising my authority or like my position as a chief by being humble enough to recognize you as an expert and say, please teach me or being humble enough to recognize that, oh, I just screwed that up. And there's not, in fact, that thing on that submarine platform. Uh, yeah. My bad, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I think humility is is a huge thing. And we actually talk about it a lot in the Naval Special Warfare community, especially among techs, because mm -hmm. especially younger new guys, mm -hmm especially if they get to go to a cool guy school early on, just because of timing, yeah. they will have a major humility issue. And 
and I mean, hell, you'll run into senior guys like me. Like I've, I've had days where I've had to sit there and remind myself, Hey, yeah, you've been doing this a long time, but in it, not of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and also that doesn't mean that you're automatically, uh, a, the most superior, you know, specimen, right. Cause we all, we all have that issue as, as a, as a problem. But I think that, and maybe it's just cause I've heard Navy cheese, Navy fries so many times <laughs> that, uh, that hum- that I think that humility is not present as a sustained value. It gets talked about and it gets enforced during season, right? We're going to humble you so that we can reunify you as a group and bring you into our mess. You're going to have your own little mess that you, that you are, and you're going to stop being the crabs pulling each other out of the bucket. Right. Okay. And you're going to find some humility because you're now at a, uh, you, you've, you've entered a new lodge and you are now at the most junior level of that as a not yet paid chief, right? right. And so y- you need to be in that place. And you need to be ready to receive. But that's that humility is sustained as something that's internal to the mess. And the idea is like some of the other stuff that you, you talk about, like ask the chief, right? You know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, oh, yeah. The, household the phrase in and out of the Navy. Yeah. The you creed, know? like you need to be the fountain of wisdom and the, yeah, like yeah. Uh, they need to come. Or, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, so, so, uh, yeah. so you sent me a link to goat locker, right? And I ended up going and clicking around some of the CPO resources in there. And, you know, one of the ones that kind of stood out to me was, and it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about was the, are you an E7 or are you a chief? Right. And that's coming up in this, in this slide deck as well. And it's, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's supermoto, right? We'll get, yeah, we'll get to it in depth, but yeah, it's, but I don't, I don't know how, I, I think that, you know, to me that there's a degree to which reading stuff like that there's a failure to acknowledge that sometimes the problem is really that the, the problems are is too big for you to handle on your own. And I know that the mess, mm. I know that the mess from having seen it done, that there's supposed to be a mentality and a mindset of if it's too heavy, ask your brother to help carry it. For sure. That's right? definitely a theme you'll see throughout the entire season when you get to that point. But right. But you also look at it and you go like the, your exterior messaging doesn't say that your exterior right. messaging right which matters just as much as your interior messaging is all skulls, goats, Navy chief, Navy pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to take the entire, we're going to take every chief select in the, you know, in the Navy and we're going to reboot camp them. We're going to have them March again because the entire 16, you know, six, 10, 17, 16, 19 years, 20, 21 years now mm-hmm. that they've been in the Navy prior to this, that didn't really count. And that's, that's, and that, you know, that comes across as a little bit of a, a resentful external perception. And there's some of that there. Yeah. But I also kind of look at it and I go, you know, man, like you're, you're, you know, again, that external messaging piece. One of the things that I think getting back to, you know, sapping credibility, sapping organizational credibility, right. Is this concern with internal conformance as well as the amount of focus on the importance of having credibility without having attained it, without having showed that you are, that you are. Yeah. Yeah. The presumption that as an anchor, sorry, bro, as, as an anchor, (laughs) you automatically should have maximum credibility in every situation. Right. Right. And that's a terrible, 
construct to create for a new chief is that you're just supposed to have all the and it's they're competing like ideologies as you go through the season where it's like you you're pushing them to if you don't know the answer know where to find the answer if you should be able to do this you should be able to do that figure it out like results not excuses all that stuff but then Mm -hmm. at the same time there's a competing ideology that we do talk about that of humility and if ask for help if you're overwhelmed and all this other stuff and i feel like I don't know if it's just like human nature that when they get into that position, it's like they don't want to let anybody down and they want to be a valuable contributing member of the team and all Maslow's hierarchy needs and blah, 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 blah. And you end up in that position where they just default to that fake it till you make it mentality and where they I think, th- that I think I they think need to some uphold of that. the image. And I can also see like a place of unification of effort on that where the idea is supposed to be, I think what, what the intent of that results, not excuses combined with, you know, reach out for help is meant to be to develop that mini mess, right? And sit there and start teaching them like, okay, initially what you're going to rely on is this group of your fellow selectees. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so, you know, maybe Dan is really good at writing evals. Like he's, he, he writes these rock star amazing evals. Right. And so he's going to proofread everybody's evals and maybe Rodney is an absolute nerd for naval history and has experience writing plan of the plan of the week. And so Ooh. he's going to do that. And maybe, you know, we've got an artist recruit in the group that they're going to make everybody's egg division, like, and, yeah. and paint and paint all the paint, all the, or, you know, paint all the haircuts on all the eggs and so on and so forth. Right. And, and I think that's what the intent is, is to sit there and send this message of, Hey, we're going to, you're, go- you're going to be held responsible to a higher level of performance, right? That's going to carry outside of your regular duty hours um, because you're not going to be able to handle everything during your seven to 16 or whatever your normal working schedule is. And we're going to expect you theoretically, at least to perform your regular duties and run your division that you're running as an LPO, presumably. Right. And we're going to, we're going to hold you to this this extremely high standard of performance. Well, the only way you're going to be able to do that is to work as a team, right? And, and there is some reboot camping in that. The way that when I went to RTC, and I'm sure it was the same way for you, you know, you had a head crew that they were the folks who they cleaned the head, and you might have had, you know, coming up to an inspection like an ironing crew, where they were the people that put the the perfect, you know, two inch wide starched creases in everybody's mm. utilities that made everybody look good because they were better at that than everything else. Like I can see that the issue is that I think that there, again, that exterior messaging and that exterior credibility piece, uh, it becomes always like, we're going to have all the answers. We're the smartest. We're the best. We know everything that is worth knowing because we're chiefs. And then again, like I, I, I've really been reflecting a lot on this and trying to find places to give credibility where credibility is due. Since, you know, listening to you and, and some of our prior, prior conversations, but, you know, you'll have a sailor that'll go and ask for help from a chief and the chief will sit there and say, well, you should look, you know, you need to look it up. You need to, you need to do X, Y, and Z first. Right. And I think the intent a lot of times that that chief has is to help the sailor learn to solve their own problem yeah. and learn where to look in the resource. But I think the way it can come across is a little bit of prideful you know, I'm, you know, there's uh, a, like yeah. pridefulness and also like, I don't actually know the answer. Yeah. So I'm just going to sit there and tell you to look it up yep. uh, because, it, <laughs> because I can sit there and pretend like I'm providing you mentorship and I don't have to reveal my lack of knowledge. And then when it comes mm. into a situation where 
There is a place for demonstration of knowledge, demonstration of ability, or hell, demonstration of credibility, right? I mean, this is this is a dumb anecdote. This is, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to preface that with this. So in NSW, there's a thing where dudes will carry fixed blade knives on their belts. Like not, you know, like Sons of Anarchy dangling down style. It's pretty common for 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 dudes. It's always dudes, you know, like this isn't a place where I need to be inclusive because it's all guys that do this. Yeah. Right. And the, you'll carry like a fairly substantial knife, like a four to six inch, you know, fairly gnarly knife on typically on the back of your belt. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is in your garrison camis. This is an op gear. Though a lot of guys will carry it in the same way in op gear. This isn't just in your garrison camis. There's no reason for it. And at one point, like I was kind of, uh, I was hanging out with my buddy Scott and he gave me one of those knives, right? And Scott's yeah. a team guy. And like I did without thinking about it, I was like, oh man, this is this is super cool. I feel super included. I'm going to put this on my belt the same way Scott carries his knife. Right. Now, I've seen you enough to know better. I want to preface this. Like <laughs> I, I had enough rank and seniority to know better. And, you know, I was walking around and at our command, at that command, we could, we could, uh, de-blouse pretty frequently because we didn't have right. AC in the building mm-hmm. and it's San Diego in July. So a <laughs> 1940s built building without AC is, uh, right. not the most pleasant place to be. And I had a chief fleet chief, like we've talked about before. <laughs> she calls me out and she goes on the, she goes, Hey, shipmate. <laughs> yes, chief. Yeah. What do you have on your belt? It's uh, it's my knife chief. And she goes, are you allowed to carry a knife like that? And my senior chief is sitting right next to her. Yeah. Right. And I look and, and I look over at my senior chief, like, because this is a, chief, this is a chief that I had had some personal conflict with before. Cause I had, you know, during a warfare qualification process, I had made her actually do a thing that she really didn't want to do mm-hmm. that was required by the big Navy instruction. Right. And I had, I had reached past her to make sure that she actually did it Yeah, because she was going to try to get it waived by, uh, you know, waved by, by, by somebody else. Yeah. And I was the warfare coordinator. I was like, no, you're, you're going to, I mean, what, what yeah, was the second class the swim call? You're yeah. going to, you're going to get your second class swimmer. If you're going to get in the XW pen, you're going to swim. Yeah. And she, she was very proud of the fact that she hadn't swam since boot camp. <laughs> right. Okay. And I had already sowed the seed some there and I yeah. still don't think I was wrong on that one. I think that if you're going to have an expeditionary yeah, I mean, warfare pin, it's, yeah, meet that's, the that's like a D, that's that's a basic DC. It's like getting a basic DC qual or a phone talker qual for right. for a ship thing. Like you don't get to get out of it just because you don't feel like doing it. And I mean, I was wrong. I will freely admit that yeah. I was wrong in that moment. Like, yeah, no, there's nothing in the uniform regs about carrying a six inch fixed blade on the back of your belt. Okay, like I was being kind of a jackass, but my chief was in the room, and my expectation. And maybe this is an out of place expectation in that moment is if your chief is in the room and another chief is getting after you. And again, maybe this is misplaced. And hey, I'm seeing, looking to you for guidance on this one, senior. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that at that moment, what the chief's role should have been would have been to sit there and say, hey, that's my sailor. Not sit there. No, you're wrong. Yeah. But sit there and be like, hey, that's my sailor. And I'm going to have a conversation with him about that. You can stop because yes, y- yes and no. I and and let me finish. It depends. This on, uh, go, yeah, go ahead. Finish the story. So because I'm, little... 
I'm looking, you know, like as she's talking to me, I'm looking over at my chief and she goes, mm-hmm. don't look at her. Look at me. I'm the person talking to you. Do you want your, do you need your chief to take care of you shipmate? And I just, I had this moment of kind of personal offense on that, or it was like, what, what is wrong with the idea of me needing my chief to get involved? Yeah. And again, so that, this, sorry, that part, that part crossed the line for me. And that's kind of what I was it, like in, in telling the story up to that point. I mean, it, like if, if one of my guys is wrong, and they're very clearly wrong. And and maybe I'm there, maybe I'm not. And a, and a chief corrects them for being wrong in that moment. Most of the time that chief, and they, as well they should, and if they don't, I go find them and correct them, is like they'll come find me after and just be like, hey, just so you know, I corrected CS2 because of this. And, you know, like blah, blah, blah. But in, you know, in that moment, had I been sitting there and that happened up to that point, I would have let it go until that, like until the you look at me and then sh- she basically starts heckling you on. Oh, you need your chief. Ooh. Like I'd have been like, OK, you're done. Like you can leave now because that's that's immature and petty. And like you're just. And I mean, I think that my issue with it also to a certain extent was that it is an NSW thing, right? Like it's not right. like, you know, it's it's this isn't one of those things where it was all of a sudden there was a trend where all the senior first at the command were carrying knives on their belts and, right. you know, were waving it. Like it's very, very common in Naval special warfare. Now and that's the thing that it, it you know, kind of makes it a weird situation is it's like walking around a normal base. If you see some genius with a Bowie knife on their belt, it's like, there's very clearly security issues with that. And it's, it's written in a book somewhere where the blade yeah. if, can't be longer than three inches or something, but it's like you're gonna get hemmed up for that, but on an NSW command, there's probably different rules for the organization to be able to do the things that they do. Or yeah, those guys are gonna be carrying stuff you're not normally allowed to carry yeah. at and certain the, times. The, blah blah blah. Like, and it's one of those things where there's nothing, you know, there's nothing in the organization. That, like, you know, yeah, op op camis are a different conversation altogether. And if, mm-hmm. if she had gone after me when I was an op camis, I probably would have at that point sat there and gone. I don't know. Like I try very hard to not be like actively defiant of somebody, but there's a really good chance I would have just walked out of the room. Yeah. And you know, that would have ended poorly too. I think like if I I was your chief, but yeah, like, you know, well, I mean, I I would have walked out of the room and walked and found my chief and let her know. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And and that's not like, you know, that's the, the part that I'm hung up on is the the pettiness of it is like, that should have not happened. And at that point I would have shut it down. It was about personal conflict. Like that was the issue. Like she was going after me about it because she, she had a a personal conflict with me and it boiled down to the fact that I sat there and in, in a situation where she felt like she shouldn't have been felt held accountable. Yeah. I got her held accountable to something. And to be fair, you were in that situation. Yeah, Yeah. you were in that situation because you were wrong. You gave her the opportunity to exploit that personal conflict. 100%. But again, like you can sit there and you can you can you can kind of walk through it. Right. And you can be like, okay. And remember, the very first thing I did when we were talking about this was I took ownership of the fact that I was wrong. Right. Yep. You know, I'm not sitting there trying to sit there and be like, oh, she should have just given me a pass because I'm a cool guy and I've I've had my pin for 10 years and she hadn't gotten it yet. So she needed to shut her mouth. Right? I'm not that dude. But what I did come at it from was the it was sort of a, a moment of like 
and and my chief apologized to me about it. And that's kind of mm-hmm. part of the reason that I've internalized it. Afterwards, we get back to the office and she goes, yeah, she wasn't wrong for talking to you about it. You were wrong for having it that way. And I think you know that. But, yeah. you know, by the same token, she shouldn't have talked to you that way. And my whole thing was like, well, why didn't you say something? Yeah, and that's what a, all it would have taken was, a, hey, can I talk to you outside real quick? And that's what would have shut it down because I wouldn't yeah. have dressed a yeah. chief down in front of you. I yeah, of course sure not. the hell would have done it as soon as the door closed behind her. But like, like, um, like at that moment, like yeah. and and that was a real credibility sapper for me with, for, with the chief that I have a deep personal with a chief. I'll put it this way. A chief that my farewell gift to her, like my personal farewell gift to her was a hundred dollar bottle of bourbon. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, this, this is somebody that, that I have a deep personal and professional affection for who I will, you know, assuming I, I pick up at some point, you know, I will definitely be calling for a charge yeah. and who, you know, I would want if they were able to, or if she was able to, for her to be, you know, one of the people that pinned me. Yeah. And I'm certainly regardless, cause I'm going to retire from the Navy. I'm going to ask her to come to be at my retirement. Yeah. Right. Like, so if, if you can sit there and you can sap my opinion of you as somebody that I have that level of personal and professional affection for through a simple action at not intervening in, and it doesn't need to be a a dramatic public intervention, right? Mm -hmm. Like I kind of phrased it wrong. I said, Hey, that's my sailor. Yeah. That's a conversation. That's probably what should have happened after I got sent out of the room. And maybe Mm -hmm. it did. I certainly didn't see it right. But even, even then, like, so up, up to that point, yeah, I was sitting there up to the point where it became petty and personal. Yeah. I wouldn't have needed to have a conversation oh, no. for that like, correction happening. If, it was what happened after where it, it transitioned it, into. If you're yeah, executing sure. it, if you're executing it professionally, right? If it's a correction that you're executing professionally, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you might have a personal conflict with the person, right? Yeah, you know, if if you're if you're in the right and you're not sitting there and turning it into a how many things can I pick that's ro- that are wrong about yeah. you today? And how many counseling chits can I generate because I have a personal issue and resentment with you? That's a different conversation and that's professionalism broadly. But, you know, if you're right and the other person is wrong, it, you know, rank, rank irregardless, as long as you're handling it in a professional manner, it should be, you know, it should be fine. And if it had been, if it had come across from the get as her just being, you know, this, this is a professional correction, right? Hey, yeah. bro, what, you know, teammate, what are you doing? You know, you know better than that. Come on. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was. Yeah. It, it, it was. It was petty from the get and became blatantly petty, yeah. pretty quick. Yeah. But again, getting back to this original whole conversation, right? You know, this unified organization, this unified organizational credibility, right? When we when we talk about building credibility, you know, establishing that trust, establishing, you know, that you are trustworthy both in a personal sense and a professional sense, and. It used to be, I think, that there were a lot of a lot of chiefs that they could rely on the fact that their their brothers and sisters in the organization that had preceded them had established that credibility for them, right? Mm-hmm. So they they weren't coming from a deficit coming out of the gate. They were coming from a place of like, I need to sustain the legacy, right? And I yeah. need to sustain this. And now I think that you know you something you talk about a lot is that. Now that credibility and trust is not implicit and it has to be earned from the get. And so you're dealing with a situation where you have these, these men and women that they need to have that higher level of technical ability and they need to have that higher level of, of trust. And I mean, sometimes it's, I think it's really, again, getting very granular, but it's baseline dumb stuff. Like 
if your division is staying late, you're staying late. Yep. Period. There's no, but I have, but I need, but I had plans Mm -hmm. because everybody had plans. Like, you know, and again, exceptions are there, you know, Hey, it's parent teacher conferences tonight and I'm a single dad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a reasonable conversation. That might also be something that you're, that you need, you know, you don't need to sit there and publicly air your business out in front of your people, but it needs to be understood that there's that, you know, that there's something going on that it truly yeah. is critical. Well, and it's and what I've seen, go ahead. I'm there's sorry, mitigations see. where it's like, like, so for us, I'm, t- I'm attached at the hip with the LSC, right. Cause supply, mm-hmm. cause supply department. Right. So yeah. If I'm in a position where there's a food load ongoing and I need to leave for a circumstance like that and there's no way around it, like that's the kind of thing I would just tell them straight out. But then I yeah. would make sure there was a chief there in case they needed mm-hmm. chief things. You know, and it's like there's a mitigation I can put in place and maybe I can co- I can go and then come back or maybe I can't and I just need a chief to be there and, and he covers down for me. And then the next day I like I get him back or whatever. But you, I mean, it, there's it, ways to mitigate those. It, it's dumb baseline stuff that like in yeah. that circumstance where you do have to leave. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, and you're going to come back, I mean, Hey, you know, it shouldn't have to be this way necessarily, but you know, one of those little things you can do to help maintain that rapport and credibility is it's late at night and you're coming back, you know, Hey, if, if we're going to be on this overnight, I'm coming back with coffee. If we're going to be yeah, on the, for or, sure. Drink know, runs, man. You know, drink runs. <laughs> yeah. Drink runs. You know, I'm going to go to little Caesars and I'm going to spend, you know, 15 bucks on three pizzas to make Easiest sure that everybody gets to eat. Yeah. Right. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I didn't just go off and disappear to take care of personal business. Right. And, and, you know, you know, yeah, I came back and you shouldn't have to sit there and do this. This, this shouldn't be an all the time thing. Yeah. Right. But you need to sit there and if you want to establish and maintain that credibility, you need to share in the hardship. And I think that is, that is one of the things I mean, we we've talked about it. You've talked about it, that there is a perception true or not that the chief's mess isn't necessarily sharing in the hardship yeah. that their sailors and officers are right. Yeah. That, and I know I'm smart enough to know that it's not all, you know, that, that, that it's not all donuts, cake and ESPN, it's just a different type of, pain. you know, it's yeah. <laughs> but that external perception matters, right? You know, one yeah, of the things, it does. you know, we, I think, we, we had a chief that we talked about on my last, yeah. on my last episode with you that he, he was actually my like exemplar of like the fleet chief who mm-hmm. is just Mr. Special. Okay. Well, he took it, he took it on the chin. On our last Simeo survey, he took it on the chin really bad mm. in point of fact. Like, ouch. Uh, I, without sitting there and violate, because I was, I was the, on the CRT. Yeah. Based on the things that, that were disclosed, it was somewhat surprised that he remained in a position of authority and leadership. And I think the reason that he did remain in that position of authority and leadership is he took ownership of it. And so now, good, you know, he's out there and he's, one, he's demonstrating technical knowledge and capability, and he still kind of has a leadership style that would not be mine necessarily in terms of, you know, the way he helps his people learn is yeah. is a bit more abrasive than than I think mine would be, but it's working. He, but he's in his he's in the space with his people every day. Like the only time he's really in the mess is when there's no joke mess business going on, or there's you know a meeting that's held in the mess. That's cause we do we do our khaki call on the mess, yeah. right? That makes total sense to me. Yeah. But the other the rest of the time he's in there, and then he's there unless there's the only time I've seen him leave before some before really any of his sailors 
has been before before the last of his sailors leave is what I mean by when I'm saying that mm-hmm. is like when there's somebody who's who's currently undergoing some accountability, right? Where it's kind of part of it is that they they are staying late because they've they've missed missed time hacks and they've they've missed you know missed links that they were supposed to hit and so now they're having to sit there and kind of pay the piper a little bit and yeah. it might not even be something that he's coming that he's coming up with it might be either a self assigned accountability thing or something coming from the LPO right and I don't think chief needs to sit there and stay because somebody is having to sit there and do earned yeah, rework not always but. But if it's divisional or departmental work, yeah, then yeah, for like, sure. And you and I can sit there and say that and be like, "This is the most obvious thing in the world." Not you yeah, not share. always. I, I say it because I think it's important and because I, I agree with you. I don't necessarily yeah. feel like it's always obvious. I think there's a lot of times where chiefs think that they've be, they've gotten to a place where they don't need to be there all the time they don't need well, yeah. to be there in those positions and, and and i don't think that the answer is that every chief is there is is there overseeing everything their department yeah. or division does that's that's a stifling thing in and of itself right right but it's also there's a big difference between sitting there and you know say you know hey i'm gonna go into my office or i'm gonna be over in this area working on something but feel free to come grab me if you need anything you know, and I'm going to establish some separation so that you have independence and ability to work. And on the other hand, you know, sitting there and this is this is, again, a, a real life thing that happened. You know, having a dude who takes off at two o'clock and, you know, leaves, goes home. Mm-hmm. Right. And having left and gone home, then sits there and called the boat to find out where we were at on maintenance. And when he found out that our LPO 1900 had cut everybody who wasn't on duty go and said the duty section can handle the remainder of this, which we yeah. could have, cause it was, it was just three M it wasn't, yeah. you know, like this, this wasn't us troubleshooting or tearing, tearing something apart. It was just regular three M stuff because, and being a submarine electrician, sometimes that's a, a large, heavy time consuming lift. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he got pissed and he called the LPO back and then we had an all hands recall at you know, like <sighs> 2030 on a Tuesday so that this dude who was in shorts and a T-shirt could scream. That's so stupid. Right. And that, it's, if you want to burn credibility to the ground, like yeah. and that's how you do it. And that's exactly that's it. And like, insane. And I don't, I don't want to turn this into Dan's Dan's bad chief anecdote hour. Right. Mm-hmm. But uh, I definitely can look at it and go, I use my anecdotes cause they're mine. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm not burning somebody else's story. I'm not telling somebody else's story. I, I, these are personal experiences that I had and you know, sometimes they're limited application, right? I don't think that that experience is as, as prevalent in 2020 as it was in 2006. Right. I think that there's, there's been, especially in the last few years, there's been a little bit of an, uh, of an, an increase in internal accountability culture, in the mess. I, I think that there's been some introspection that started to happen. I think that having the McPawn sit there and show up on the, I, I get with the, the, uh, the post about the, the sailor that didn't want to be, the, I have yet to meet a chief. I'd want to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and, yeah. and publicly on his personal Facebook account, start commenting on things, you know, and agreeing with the, you know, take that pirate skull off your truck and start chiefing. Yeah. Right. Like, I think that, that, that stuff like that has helped, but, it's still happening, man. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and and I think that it's, I think that 
that la- that losing that credibility goes hand in hand with with entitlement culture. Yeah. Uh, and I think I know we're going to get into that as we dig through this, but earning credibility is about getting back to that fundamental concept. It's about demonstrating ability and establishing personal rapport. I think that is that is how you earn credibility with sailors, right? That doesn't mean that you're going to sit there and pat their butts, but it does mean that you need to know your sailors, right? And I don't feel like this is a thing that I should have to say, but right. my CMC and my chief, they know a lot about my personal life. Some of it is self-disclosed and some of it is because they really care and they're yeah, and deeply they invested yeah. and they pay attention. And it's not, you know, oh, I'm, I need to fill out these, these notes in a Devo record. Right. It's that they recognize one of the hugely important things about having a successful relationship with a sailor is knowing who that sailor is, because if nothing else, it helps you be a better leader. Yeah. Right. And, and, and when I say that, I don't mean like a better leader in terms of that platonic ideal of leadership. What I mean is like, literally it helps you to get your people to do things better. Yeah. Right. Because taking care of sailors, that's the job, right. Or that's the, that's the fundamental job, but that fundamental job is in support of what? Killing people and breaking things. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And if you're, and if you know your people and they trust you and they have that established rapport, they are going to do a better job of whatever their particular part in that big machine that we have that is the United States Navy's ability to sit there and kill people and break their stuff or try to avoid having to do those things through right. other exertions of power. They're going to be better at it. They're going to do a better job and you're going to have a better idea of when they're in a position where they're not going to be able to handle it anymore. And maybe that means you as a chief, because you've took the time to establish that credibility and rapport instead of having to sit there and draft a Navy blue sit rep because you had a sailor who had an ARI or God forbid committed suicide. You took that time. You built that relationship with that division, with that sailor. And now you as a leader, you're able to sit there and maybe you're that last minute backstop. I mean. I'll, I'll be real. Like I'm I, again, I, I try to be very honest and upfront about this and I, I don't care if people know who I'm on this at this point. Like I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, hand out my DOD ID number, but I'm using my first name. I'm not using this because if somebody wants to go after me for my opinions on this. Yeah. Okay. Cool, man. <laughs> Good choice. I went through suicidal ideation earlier this year. I went through really bad suicidal ideation this year. I went through, get all of my guns out of my house and given to my best friend and my CMC sat there and put me on a 96 and, and I had a chaplain texting me every day and, you know, new medication kind of suicidal ideation, right? right? I'm fine now. You know, I've got, I've got all my, my toys that go bang back and I'm doing a lot better. And there was a ton of different stuff that went into that situation happening. If I hadn't had a relationship with the CMC that I had, where I felt like after I went and talked to the chaplain and sat there and said, Hey, this is where I'm at, bro. And I don't think that's, I don't think this is a healthy place for me to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, do you think your CMC is going to be able to, you know, do you, do you think he's, he's trustworthy? Do you think he's going to take care of you in the circumstance? Because my thing that I was terrified of in that moment was being thrown away by the Navy. Yeah. That's a lot right? of the, a lot of people's fears in that moment. And of, of, of course I know that like, like, yeah. you know, you, you know, like, like, and realistically I knew cause I had already been through it before that there was almost no chance the Navy just throwing me in the trash can. Right. Right. And especially my level of seniority, my level of experience, I, I don't want to say that it's, it's okay. It's never okay for us to just throw somebody away. 
right, ever. But it's it's a little bit more reasonable to me to sit there and say to a dude who's, you know, a year and a half into the service, okay, you're having such a hard time adapting to this mentally. Maybe it's better if you don't do this job than somebody that's done it for 16 years. And, you know, at that point, like, it's okay, we can do some intervention. But that's that's what establishing credibility and rapport gets you. And that's why it matters. And to me, what undermines it, we've already de- we've already dug pretty deep into it. And I think the biggest thing that kind of goes along with that is that action of that single bad chief might not even be your chief, might not even be in your department. But that chief I talked about that didn't know where things were or that didn't know that, uh, you know, the systems that were on the boat and called the whole division back so we could get yelled at at 2030 on a Tuesday. And I have more stories about this dude. He was, <laughs> he was a dirtbag. Yeah. He was such a dirtbag that his name became a synonym for getting screwed over by a chief on the boat. If you had, a, if you, if you had had something bad happen to you that happened because of the chief's mess, you got his last name. Yeah. yeah. And that was boat wide, right? Yikes. And you, you think that the whole mess had real good credibility at that point? No, not at all. And that's, you know, and I, I mean, one of, the, one of the saving graces of that, of that mess was our a gang chief mm-hmm. came back and met with us one day when he was on the boat and he like had a little division meeting and he said, Hey guys, like don't want to undermine, you know, EMC. But, uh, you know, if you guys ever need chief stuff and he's not around, you, you don't think you're going to be able to get good help from him for whatever reason, you can always come see me. I'm around. I'll help yeah. you out. Yeah. Right. Which I don't, I have to say, I have a feeling that that's the only reason that there's an EMC or that, that there's, there's any EMs from my boat at that time that are still in the Navy. Yeah. Right. And then one of them just made chief this last year. Really good dude. He was his second class with me, mm-hmm. but that was that's that's you know and that i don't think that's uniquely bad but i mean i think the effect of that single set of negative actions whether it's something as simple as having a dude use a dirt bag or as bad as you know one of the things i point out every year during initiation you were talking about it with the odc when's it going to get shut off and who's going to lose their season right you know that chief up at ATG Northwest that decided it was a good idea to have his selectees come over to his house yeah. while he was drunk, and then do push-ups and dog poop. Yeah. Okay. I, I posted about that on Reddit, right? And like, I don't think that that reflects the entire credibility of that of of that mess individually as the ATG Northwest mess or of the entire chief's mess, because I've had the moderative effect of having been around lots of good chiefs over the course of my time in the Navy to sit there and go, yeah, okay. Like that dude, he's kind of a pretty good example of some of the problems I've seen with the mess, but he's not the whole mess. Right. right? But if you're already looking for a reason to be resentful or to deprive credibility of the organization as a whole, Maybe because you got counseling shits, maybe because you have a chief that's not great, maybe because your ship or your organization's chief culture is a little bit more internally prideful and a little bit less take care of sailors. That one dude's action, that one freaking BMC or whatever he was his action up in uh, Bremerton, that affected the whole Navy. It made the cover of Navy Times. So you want to talk about a credibility sapper. Right. We've, I think we've hit it at every layer, layer from 
not your chief doing it, you know, doing something that saps your chief's credibility right. in, within a small organization, your chief doing something that saps their credibility and the, their, the, the organization's credibility on the boat and their, the entire organization's credibility with specifically your group and that large scale hit, like, I mean, hell, the, you know, we just had a CMC of a major ordinance command get relieved of his, relieved of his cookie and arrested publicly a couple days ago. You know, I haven't seen that yet. Uh, yeah. Naval ordnance testing unit down at Camp, Camp, Cape Canaveral. Uh, he was drunk in a golf cart and got in a fight with the dude. And, you know, reading it generously, it sounds like he was probably in the right to sit there and and brawl a little bit based on some of the total circumstance. I think probably dude had some internal aggression that was going on. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you're a CMC. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, you know. <laughs> like you know the the way i kind of always look at it is like you know i when i'm not living in california you know i'll I'll concealed carry sometimes Mm -hmm. right one of the very first rules i learned when i was you know kind of learning how to concealed carry is people can say the worst thing in the world about your mother and you will smile and say thank you yeah you're a lot nicer (laughs) right because you don't want to have to shoot somebody Right. Like you you shouldn't want to have to shoot somebody. And if you do want to shoot somebody, maybe you shouldn't be carrying a handgun, but let's, let's slide back on that one. Right. If you're a CMC and you know, there's, there's times and places where you're going to have power and positional authority and an occasion to be the thunder, whether it's behind the closed behind closed doors in the mess, having a discussion of how the mess isn't doing well. And maybe you need to sit there and raise your voice a little bit. Maybe it's, you need to put the fear of God into, an AOAN who you want to salvage him. And so part of how you're going to do that is you're going to sit there and bring him back to that baseline RDC level uh, at a, at a DRB. I don't think that's necessarily the right way to run a DRB, but I've seen it have its, its positive effects. Mm. Okay. The time for that is not drunk in your girlfriend's golf cart out in town. Yeah. There's, there's no good outcome to that. You could be a hundred percent in the right, but, not only that, he took the dude's phone. And I mean, again, of course it got covered in Navy times. Yeah. You know, and you know, for better or worse, like if I go out and did something real dumb as a first class today, I, I go out, I took bath salts and, you know, I ended up running naked down through gas lamp wearing nothing but a mask. There might be U.S. Navy sailor reporting, you know, maybe because of my organization I'm a part of you know, Navy times will report on Naval special warfare screws up again, mm. but because there's not that rank identity within the first class mess that you're within first classes that chiefs have, there's not going to be Navy first, yeah. uh, embarrasses, embarrasses United States Navy or what's wrong with the first class mess right. on the cover of Navy times. It's not going to get posted on Reddit other than as a story of, wow, this sailor really did a crazy thing. You know, yeah. and I think that that's, that's one of the big mentality shifts that I, I think that that accountability and credibility thing. And I know that there's discussions like this going on and I know that there's internal accountability discussions going on in the mess. Right. But I also, I think that, um, there's a little less thought given to credibility, the, the establishment and maintenance of credibility and rapport with sailors, which I'm glad to see this is in this document. Anyways, have, I feel like we've, we've, slap the heck the heck out of this topic so the moving on to the next slide so there's a simon simon cynic quote uh if you're not familiar with him he's a 
he's a pretty famous author, does TED Talks, YouTube videos, all kinds of stuff, but has a ton of books. One of them is Leaders Eat Last. And the quote is, building trust uh, requires nothing more than telling the truth. And it's talking, it, it put credibility in parentheses to relate the quote to what we're talking about, credibility, because it's very closely related to trust. But what does that quote on trust mean to you when you hear it? Hmm. So there's a part of me that immediately has this response saying that is it's there, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of uh, me that goes there's some bullshit in that for us <laughs> and the reason for that the reason I say that is that you know we talk about oh credit all that credibility requires is telling the truth but as an example let's say there's a decision that comes out of the mess mm-hmm. that you view as being a morally and functionally wrong decision right. right? But because of the unity of the organization, you're going to sit there, a unity behind the chain of command, and you're going to state it as if this is a coming out of your mouth. This is a decision that you fully and 100% support. Yeah. Right. Now, is that telling the truth? If you, if you, the little voice that inside your head is like, this is incredibly stupid and it's going to be harmful to my trust and credibility. Yeah. And it's going to hurt hurt the unity of the ship, but I'm doing it. I, I think that there's truth in it and the idea of I think probably what this is going for from a training position is the idea that as a chief, you should be willing, you know, sometimes to, you're the person that's going to carry the bad news up to the old man. Yeah. Right? You're going to go up with Ensign Anderson, and you're going to explain why it is that your division gets to be get get handed the football because you're the division that's going to prevent getting underway that day. Right. Right. And so is is the the fact that you didn't manage to do the thing going to hurt a little bit of your your trust and credibility in that moment? Sure. Is it also going to sit there and build that reservoir up on the long term because you were willing to own your stuff? Yeah. And I think that's that's what he's going for is basically you want to establish trust. Don't make lying a habit, one, and two, be willing to sit there and, and tell somebody a hard truth that, yeah, that sucks I, to hear. I think that's a big part of it, too, is like I, there's not there's not a lot of circumstances where when I told an uncomfortable truth, it didn't end up paying off long term. Like I mm-hmm. I tell stories about sitting down and and having uncomfortable conversations with a lot of the first class instructors I had at the A school where we were debriefing evals or doing midterms. And I got an LPO from an, an S2 division on an aircraft carrier that has an EP eval saying that she managed... 300 plus CSs and did all this crazy stuff and was apparently performing at an EP level when she did it, but she wasn't now. And if she was then great, good for her. And that's what the eval reflected. But she thought that based on that eval, that going in everything I do, like she's going to have the Midas touch with everything she did. And so she came into an A school environment and was not doing the things she needed to do and being the leader that was reflected on that last eval. So she was being accurately evaluated during that reporting period. And I told her as much. And oh, man, she accuracy and truth in reporting. Uh, shocking. What, kind of na- what Navy are we? Yeah. In? Uh, so she didn't handle that well. And I did it with more more than one instructor where I sat down, had that tough conversation during either a midterm or an eval debrief. But over the next year, you saw gigantic change in how she approached a lot of things to the to the point that at the end of the next reporting period, she was one of my best instructors. And mm-hmm. I so it's 
it's a tough conversation to tell somebody that they're underperforming and that the perception they have of themselves in their mind isn't reality. But I've almost never encountered a situation where telling the truth hasn't been a long-term win, you know, like a long-term yeah. net win for not just me, but sailors, mission accomplishment, et cetera. So I think it... Absolutely. And I think too, that even with the scenario you described with the... We got we come out with a unified message from the mess, and I might think it's the worst thing ever. It's like there's a spectrum there because, of course, there is. But there's a lot. If there if it's something I'm willing to die on that hill over, then I'm not going to come out of the mess with it, that unified mission vision. I'm going to be in the CO stateroom dying on that hill. But if it's something that I can live with, but I don't necessarily agree with, there's a lot of ways to f- to manage that with the things that you can control and the things that you can't. Right. So like if I come mm-hmm. out there, I can't control that this decision was made, but I can control how I deliver it. I can control how I mitigate the effect on my people. I can control how I pay them back on the back end if applicable. I can control a whole lot of things where what I've noticed is specifically in this scenario is when we do, when we do that, like when the, the mess comes out and and it's almost universally agreed upon by all of us that this is a bad idea, but We've pled our case and decided, look, it's not unsafe. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's just stupid. And it's going to it's going to blow back on us and the and the command structure. But we we fought it and we lost. And these are our marching orders. When we come out, it's almost it's almost universally recognized by enough of the E5 and E4 mafia that have been around for a while that they're intelligent enough to read between the lines. Like, am I coming out there? And placing the blame at the CEO's feet instead of owning it myself? No. But do they kind of see that this is a little different and that they can probably read between the lines in that gray area and understand that I don't think seniors on board with this necessarily. And because I'm doing things like mitigating the effects on my sailors, they kind of are just like, they're the ones that are going to affect buy-in by just saying, look, this is going to suck, but let's just go do it for senior. So it's yeah, it's kind of you end up in a position where I, am I am I telling them the complete unadulterated truth no matter what with no filter? No. But am I kind of conveying a truth through the way that I come and I, again, I'm not I'm not coming out there and going like like basically coming from the old man. Yeah. Yeah, no, that no. or or if, or pretending that I'm on board but like clearly communicating through my eye rolls and body language. Eye rolls and body language, board. yeah. Yep, yep. I I'm coming out there and, and owning it, but you can tell something's different. Like mm-hmm. are they picking up on it? Probably. Are they yeah. picking up on it by understanding that well why is he mitigating the effect the negative effect it's having on us and doing all these things he wouldn't normally do to make sure you know what I mean like he of course. he already sees I mean, how this is going to hurt and he's mitigating it. So was this really his idea? Probably not. No. You can yeah, you can undertake those kinds of mitigating effects. And I think that a good chief would and a good chief would also maybe have to do a little bit less of that. Uh, if going back to what we were just talking about before, you know, you have well-established credibility and rapport with your people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? If you're already trusted, then yeah, hey, yeah. okay, we can all see this is a dumb thing. Senior says we need to do it. Let's get it done. And, you know, we can gripe about it the whole time internally. Yeah. But, like, we're going to get it but done yeah, because that, that's what we do as a group. That cre- And that credibility you spent all that time and pain building is yeah. – it, that's the time where it's going to be like, okay, you roger that senior. Like we get it. And they're going to go do it. 
And that's also a time where to maintain that credibility, I'm going to be there with them doing whatever mm-hmm. hurts, like you said earlier, right? I'm going to, it's going to be like a shared adversity that we all go through instead of yeah. me saying, okay, go do that thing. And then I go back into the mess and bang my head against the wall or whatever. But yeah. So in, in relation to that quote, right, it also asks when you have toxic behavior, which would be the polar opposite of behaving in the way that quote describes, do we have a problem and why? And I, I scratched out why not, because I feel like this is so obviously why. Like, like of course we do, but why? Yeah. Um, I think that what it boils down to, you know, my, my, my long thought that I've had is there, there's a there's a selection bias going on right now. Mm. Right. And I actually if I want to dig real deep into this, I think that we actually kind of hit on it a little bit before when we talked about accuracy and truth in reporting. Mm. Right. So every sailor is told to write their eval basically as if they are the number one-est EP that yeah. is ever number one EP. <laughs> right. And so, you yeah. know, it doesn't matter if what you did was you showed up and you went to a school and you had like three people as a first class that reported to you and you were here for four months. You better find a way to stretch that until you filled all 18 lines with right. with good with goodness. Right. I found right? myself in that position this year because I was gone from work for five months getting treated for yeah. cancer. It shouldn't necessarily be a knock against me. But at the same time, I wasn't there. Like, so yeah, like, how do no, you document I mean, that performance? I, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I yeah, feel it like weird. And, and what we kind of have going on is like everybody is writing these evals that, that mm. look like this. And then when we go to ranking board. I've sat so many ranking boards at this point. It turns into a dogfight, right? Yeah. Especially once you get up a third, about two thirds of the way up in your rack and stack, it turns into such a dogfight where you're sitting there. And I had a dude when he got, he was on a trip at our last second class ranking board. And I kind of, I buttonholed him pretty hard. That is grabbed him through the top button on his blouse and put him up on a wall, like metaphorically uh, to sit there and be like, what what's wrong with you, man? Yeah. Because his his whole concern at that ranking board was finding a way to get his sale his his top three sailors and his troop the number one, two, and three EPs. Right. And nothing that anybody could say could convince yeah. him otherwise. And he threw an absolute tantrum. And and he had been dead silent for the first hour of the ranking board while we were sitting there. And so we were trying to carefully rack and stack everybody because everybody deserves a fair shake. Right. But as I noticed, he's not, you know, reading 70 second class evals. I'm I'm sitting there and I'm going like so many of these are the same and there's so little delineation, right? If I didn't know most of these sailors fairly ready basis, Mm -hmm. like how do I break out these five sailors against each other in a realistic way? Because we've we've gotten so far from accuracy and truth and reporting on evals. And then, you know, I've sat in ranking boards before where I've I've had to sit there and foot stomp and be like, no, we're not doing that because Mm -hmm. I've heard this phrase come out of the fellow LPO's mouth. And I will I bet pretty good money you've heard it come out of or you've heard of it coming out of another chief's mouth, Mm -hmm. which is, hey, look. All of these sailors that we're dealing with, they're all good at their jobs. They're all, let's agree that everybody's <laughs> technically good, and let's talk about the other stuff that makes them a, the, yeah. a good potential whatever. Right. Right. And I'm like, no, they're not actually all technically equally good at their jobs. Yeah. Right. You're saying that because you well, have yeah. a, you have some <laughs> sailors that you know aren't technically good at their jobs, and you know that if they had it, if you had written right. their eval accurately and honestly, 
it would hurt them. It would hurt their feelings. Yeah. It would hurt them. And you don't want to do that. And I can understand and respect that you don't want that, that that's a hard conversation to have. I also don't think that we should, you know, give your sailor all this extra credit because they picked up these non-mission contributing in some ways collaterals, yeah. right? Yeah. That allowed them to get lots of face time and lots of prominence. Is it great that somebody organizes the Christmas party? Absolutely. I appreciate the hell out of those people. Do I think that that should be – do I really think that that needs to be an eval line no. for somebody <laughs> that they organize a Christmas party? I mean maybe if they don't have anything else to put, sure. Yeah. But I don't think that it should be like a strong delineating factor. Yeah, you know, I, I've definitely for, you know, sat there and, and, and heard like I, I somebody will get done briefing someone and they'll be like and another chief will be like, oh, so they did their job. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like you know, I'm I, gonna I know choke for you. A, yeah, like it's I, I not, know for a fact that I have had that said about me, like because my first my first year at my my last command, we were coming from a really significant deficit in terms of our communications capability and what we had organically available. And so, I mean. You know, just just being upfront, like when I showed up, it's naval special warfare, right? Basically, everything we do is at the secret level. Yeah. The Cipernet system that we had in the building did not work. So, if you wanted to work on Cipper, you had to go to a different building about a half a mile away, on a base that is difficult to park on. So you're walking. Yeah. Half a mile to go use Cipper in a different building, and the first thing I did at that command was sit there and be like, okay, this is a major problem. Yeah, how do we fix it? <laughs> and how do I fix it, right? And I know for a fact that at, because again, like I've talked about before, chiefs chiefs are good at keeping secrets sometimes and less good other times. Uh, you know, I had a dude who was, he, he came out of that ring more than he flat out told me that, you know, there were a couple of folks in there that sat there and said, well, you know, he's really good at all this ET stuff, but uh, he's not, he's not sitting there and, and being really heavily involved with CPO 365. <laughs> it's like at a time when I was working some monster hours establishing connectivity so the command could actually function. Yeah. Yeah. I would just did my job and I'm, and I'm not sorry about it. Right. And, and I, I, I use myself a lot of times as personal examples because obviously, you know, I'm self-interested dude, like everybody is, but also, you know, I don't want to sit there and be dragging out, you know, stories for right. somebody else's story. But I've, I've run into it, right? Like, yeah. and yeah, no, not everybody is equally technically good and not everybody is equally technically capable. And yeah, sometimes they just did their job is a deep and meaningful thing. If you're dealing with, mm. say, a 688 that's supposed to have eight ELTs on board and they had four ELTs on board, yeah, standing, being the leading ELT as a, you know, frocked first class, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a pretty significant level of of you know, functional responsibility yeah. considering it's supposed to be a chief. Uh, and again, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of going afield off this, but yeah, that toxic behavior piece, I think the derivative is we end up sitting there, we write these evals, we rank these people, we end up having, you know, I think the process works decently, but there's a decent proportion of folks that are picking up that, they are not selected for their technical and professional acumen, and they're not yeah. selected yeah. for their ability necessarily to work in a team context. They're selected because they manage to find ways to make themselves stand out that were the easy breakouts at their local board mm -hmm. and then at the board in Millington. Well, and that's the the truth and reporting piece is huge, too, because like I've talked, yeah. especially recently, I've talked to a lot of people that have sat boards, uh, which I have not yet, but 
Uh, I'm, I'm trying to during the shore duty, but we'll see. Um, it's they've said that they because you're not allowed to talk about any personal mm-hmm. knowledge you have of any board eligible sailor while you're there. So the we'll talk about somebody that gets selected and be like, dude, what happened? <laughs> and they're like, they're like, look, we I yeah, I know that. You know that. But when you're there, you can't talk about that. You can only talk about and evaluate what's written on those evals. And they have the evals. So it's like if they have a bunch of number one EP evals that say they're the second coming and the write up captures all the things that are on the ladder and on the thing and all the expectations of the next pay grade and on and et cetera, like if they have all the things to get all the points, they're going to advance. And so truth and reporting is a huge deal. But toxic behavior wise, I wanted to touch on the and it's because it's going to run in such stark contrast to what I read out of the Blue Jackets manual here in a minute. But on one of my submarines that I was a chief on, there was this culture created when we were underway that music videos would be playing like 24 seven and a big screen TV with a sound system and inside the chief's quarters. Right. And not just music videos, like the most explicit, like nasty, raunchy music videos that you could possibly imagine half naked people running around like weird stuff going on, super inappropriate and unprofessional content. Right. And I'll just leave it at that. I'm using your imagination. So then, I got you. then sailors would come and this is a mixed crew. We had female uh, officers on board and we had uh, for the last deployment that I did, we brought a bunch of female enlisted that were TAD to like get quals and stuff. So mixed crew as well and knocking on the door and they open the door and there's a bunch of chiefs sitting there watching a music video with a bunch of strippers and like all this weird cra- and they'll like hit pause and have a professional conversation with the sailor while some chick's butt is like f- frozen on the screen or some dude is like doing something crazy or whatever something mm-hmm. in- insanely unprofessional borderline disgusting is happening on the screen and it just became normal. It was like part of the furniture. It just was this thing. And I was constantly like in there with my skin crawling. It's to the point where I avoided being in there at almost all costs during the hours that this would be happening. And then when it wasn't those hours and I was on the midwatch, I would just shut the TV off. But it was like it became this normal thing. And I kept trying to explain to the cob. I'm like, this is not OK. <laughs> like, uh, you guys being in here watching this crap is like, like, yeah, okay, maybe sometimes you could watch it, but then you have to be like Johnny on the spot with the remote to make that stuff go away before allowing anybody to enter when someone's knocking. And they never did and they never cared. And it's just like, then go, if you want to watch this, go watch it somewhere privately in your rack or something. Like, you can't create this environment because sailors come in here and they should want to come in here and seek out the help of chiefs and the guidance of chiefs. And you're creating this environment where it's like a treehouse with a bunch of like prepubescent boys in here. It's like, it was disgusting and it was unprofessional. And I would use the word toxic. And I I kept trying to convince people that it wasn't okay. And I just couldn't get through. And I'm just like, this is so bad, man. Wow. Like I can't like, I, cause you can't escape it. It's like, that's where the chiefs are going to be. You need your chief for a whole bunch of stuff, whether it's signatures or maintenance or guidance or, Oh my God, something went wrong or whatever. 
and you run and get your chief and it's just like that's what you walk into and oh by the way there was a bunch of female enlisted on board it was it was it was gross but that's wow yeah that's... and that will run in super stark contrast to what we read here in a second but um leading by example is the thing i'll just touch on it real quick because i think we've taught we've touched on a lot of these things as we've gone through but discussing the importance of leading by example is is the flip side of that coin right where it's like Mm -hmm. in order for you to build that trust you have to be doing the things and you mentioned it earlier and i think it was a really good way of describing it and i'm not sure if i'm using the exact words but you said like a shared adversity basically where it was like a yeah it they need to know that you're feeling the pain too, whether it's the same type of pain or whether it's a different variety of pain, the same magnitude, like they need to know you're down there suffering with, with them or they're not going to be able to relate and they're not going to be able to build that trust with you. So so to me, this is a common idea in, in the Navy broadly, but I think particularly for Naval special warfare, you know, we build our teams in shared adversity and sometimes it's the very simplest form of shared adversity of being physically wet and cold and under, you know, immense physical strain, right. And building this tightened group of brothers and sisters mm-hmm. that, and the fact that your chief is like, every time I've, I've seen it done right, you know, your chief is sharing in that. My, my perfect example would be uh, when we were, you know, doing land nav, this is two workups ago, mm-hmm. right we all started out doing it in buddy pairs and you know, our chief was buddy paired up with the most junior guy. And there were times when chief was navigating and there was time when the most junior guy was navigating. And then the final exercise, we're all moving as a group. Chief didn't get a pass because he was wearing an anchor and neither did the LPO where we, we were all out there as a group going up and down these big nasty Hills in the California desert trying to move as quickly as we could so that we could, you know, win the day. Yeah. You know, when we get out underway, we're all equally wet and cold. And some of it's kind of that rough equality. But I think that that idea, that sharing and hardship, and yeah, sometimes it's it's a little bit less tangible, I think, somewhere sometimes in the fleet, right? Because there's only so many hands that can be troubleshooting at any given moment. But yeah, Sometimes it's going to be something as it would be, it could be something as simple as, Hey, we're all painting right now. And that includes chief, like chief is painting, right? I think I don't, does chief always need to be painting? No, no. But if we're all having to sit there and do this thing, like if the whole division is having to sit there and do this thing and it's the exception, it's not a normal occasion. Yeah. Then yeah, maybe chief, you know, down blouses and picks up a paintbrush. That's and he gets in yeah. it. stores loads, and, man, for, for us, yeah. deployment stores loads were those like those times where it's like my division's working an 18, 20 hour day. I'm working an 18 to 20 hour day. And I'm not like, I don't mean I'm there. I mean, like my blouse is off and I'm moving food or I'm in the storeroom packing mm-hmm. food into a f- outboard or I'm, you know, I, I do a lot of supervision in that, too, where I'm running up and down ladders to talk to the guy that's topside, come back down, make sure the right stuff's coming down. What else do you guys need? And then I run off and go get some piece of gear or whatever. And then I come back and go on a drink run, go get them food so they can keep it moving, whatever. Um, but, yeah, it's I, a lot of the time it's like de-bloused, sweating, humping food, just like everybody yeah, else. And as it should be. Yeah. And it's that's a, it, it's it's the thing I, I I mentioned it recently in a discussion, but it was like, it's, 
I, I had this thing burned into my memory. I had a CO and I want to say it was in relation to an issue that happened with one of our duty chiefs where um, something went terribly wrong and they were not where they should have been in a supervisory capacity. And I was talking mm-hmm. to him about it. And he said, he basically said like, look, the first question I'm going to ask when I get a phone call with bad news is where was the applicable supervisor? So like in the, in relation to, uh, like the safety and security of the ship or duty section stuff or whatever, where was the duty chief is going to be the first thing that comes out of my mouth. And so I always try like for whatever reason, in the context of that conversation, it struck me not just as a duty chief, but it just as a chief in general, like where do I need to be right now? Like of all the things that are going on and all the plates that are spinning, like where do I need to be standing? Where is my physical mm-hmm. presence? The most important and just making sure that I'm always there. Like, and if that means I'm humping boxes and I'm humping boxes, if that means I'm detached and get like maintaining a big picture view so that I can guide the things that are going on and see obstacles coming and, and this, that, and the other thing and facilitate communication, then that's what I'm doing. But like, w- based on what's going on, where does, where do I need to be standing and doing what I do in that exact moment? And so that was the kind of thing. It's like, it's glaringly obvious to me when you detach look at the big picture of all things that are going on, prioritize them, and then answer that question. Like, where do I need to be? If I got a bunch of other stuff that needs to get done, but it's like, it doesn't have to get done right now. Nothing's on fire. Mm-hmm. Where do I need to be? I need to be D-Blouse humping food with my division because that's the most meaningful and important place for me to be to like lead my sailors and and do chief things like that's that's yeah. it's going to be have the biggest impact it's the most important thing that's going on and the most important thing i could be doing to help them is moving food sometimes the most important thing i could be doing is crunching through a spreadsheet to make sure that i don't over order food so that when the store's load happens it's not unnecessarily painful which i do that too but in that moment it's like yeah there's there's those times where that pain needs to happen and and they need to see yeah. it happen and share in it and, with you. For sure. You know, and I mean, to me, I mean, we, we talk about the creed, like sometimes, yeah, like you're going to have to sit there and bear up and do this thing that isn't, you know, are you necessarily the most helpful force there in that moment? Could your time be potentially better utilized? A hundred percent is showing face, not in the sense of like, Hey, I'm here in front of the CEO, but showing face to your people there and them knowing that you have your back and that you're, doing the dumb basic thing like getting people water bottles or literally physically sharing that load that matters. And yeah, does that mean that you might end up sitting there and having to stay late to work on a stupid spreadsheet? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why you, that's why you get the brown pants. Yep. Right. And the big paycheck and, and the special hat. Right. And I don't think that, that's necessarily, I, you know, I, I don't think it's fully perceived, especially by very young people in the Navy. I don't think it's missed by most as many people as it could be otherwise. But I also, I, I think that it would do a lot of good for a lot of chiefs to sit there and and have that internal recognition of the importance and, and effect of the choices they make on a day to day basis on their. And we've already talked about it a lot. What you do today pays dividends tomorrow right? right and i think that that's that's one of those things that i think everybody will tend to forget sometimes but i think particularly sometimes we'll 
in, in the military, we get so mission focused on this, this tight aperture of that next target. Mm. And we forget that this is a retention game. This is a, this is a long-term game. This is all this readiness and lethality stuff that we're doing right now. It's for the war that we're trying to not have to fight. But if we're going to have to fight that war, we need to have our people all in and have them have absolute trust and faith in their leadership. And if we don't have that, things aren't going to go well. Yeah. Sorry. Um, Uh, I know I'm, yeah, no, you're fine, man. And so like, I, I think we've spent because we I mean, we literally have been straddling several questions as we've gone through. But like this, this one, there's a follow on question that I definitely want to talk about specifically. But it says, how does credibility or lack thereof impact the ability to lead up, down and then laterally across the organization? And so we can spend a little time on the specific pieces of that we haven't touched on yet. But then hmm. the amplifying question is the one that I really like is what's the difference between loyalty to the institution versus individuals? Ooh, yeah. that's a really great one. Um, so up, down, left and right for up to me, it's, it's all about upward. Tr- it's all about establishing that you're trustworthy. Yeah. Right. If it, that's, that's it. You know, and I mean, literally baseline honesty stuff that you you established and, and your predecessor established with that ensign that's now in 06 that you're talking to. Right. That chiefs are trustworthy. And it was sustained over that long period, you know, that that by that organization of that long period of time. Right. And so when you're having to go in front of him and saying, sir, either, you know, your bright idea is really bad. <laughs> OK, and here's why. And I know that you have a lot invested in, in how great your bright idea is, but it it's not going to work. And having that be taken on board and not having it have to be a thing where like, okay, well, we're going to try it anyway. Roger that, sir. Let's go do it. Yeah. You know, you have to sit there and, and prove yourself trustworthy and you have to be thinking about what you're doing with that ensign, right? Yeah. Uh, That's a big and- part that I don't think gets enough attention is that. That ensign that is often viewed as like an inconvenience to your day. You know what I mean? Like I, I've had a lot mm-hmm. of conversations with a lot of chiefs where it's just like this annoying thing they have to do is like train an ensign. It's like, but then they spend 90% of their their bandwidth complaining about the CO that they're having to deal with right now. I'm like, put those things together in your head, mix it around, see what you come up with. Because like... Well, uh, so, so one of my best friends in the Navy is a female lieutenant commander, mm-hmm. right? Known her for a good number of years. Uh, and she and I had a conversation actually last night, kind of because I told her that I was going to be doing this. Yeah. And we talked about like, she, she's from a military family. Mm-hmm. Um, both of her, her mom is a former staff sergeant. Her dad's a retired master gunnery sergeant on uh, the Marine Corps. But her whole thing is that she didn't have a good chief until she was a lieutenant who was up for Oh four. Yeesh. And she had a senior chief at that point yeah. who he went on to be a CMC or a command senior chief and then a CMC at mm. a fairly prominent special vessel and not not your special vessel, oh. so we're clear. Okay. <laughs> um, but a, a unique, a, you know, a, one of the Navy's unique platforms. Gotcha. Okay. And she outright told me until she had this, this senior chief as her chief, 
she just didn't trust chiefs. She just presumed that every single thing that a chief said was going to have to be double checked. Every single thing that, because she, her one previous good chief that she'd had was her chief at OCS. Yeah. Which thank, 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 thank God for that. Right. That, that we didn't break that relationship with somebody who, who realistically this, this woman is probably going to retire as a senior 06 and has the potential. Like I've seen her fit reps. Yeah. Okay. She has fit reps that say things like future flag officer, yeah. multiple fit reps that say things like future, future flag officer. So just think about what that means for you out yeah. there, chief, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's listening to this. If she hadn't had that moment of inter- intervention where she had that good chief at that transition point to where she's getting ready to go be an XO. Yeah. Okay. That's so, and, and this is a person who there's a good chance she's going to retire from the Navy as a rear admiral. Yeah. And imagine what that looks like. If you have a two-star admiral who looks at every chief that comes through the door and automatically gives them zero trust and faith. Right. Right. That's, that's the long-term impact. And that's why leading up matters. And I think we, yeah. we talk about leading up for chiefs a lot of times. I mean, hell, you could hear it from the way that I talked about it initially. I was talking about leading up to the XO and the CO and the department head, mm-hmm. right? But leading up also includes Ensign Schmuckatelli, yeah. who, you know, you're having it's, to, to ride yeah. this this lane uh, between being dad or mom. Yeah, I was going to say, the interesting and, part of it is like, it's like you're leading up and down at the same time. Yeah. And it's, you because it is like you're finishing them as an adult sometimes when they're mm-hmm. an ensign, but you're also... They're 22. Yeah, like, you're also trying to build them up as a leader, and it's this weird environment, but it's it's like one of the coolest leadership challenges I've ever experienced is... Yeah. And that's spending and that's that type a, that's, of time doing that. That's, you know, one of the things that, you know, is a little, a little sad for me in, in my job is that, uh, realistically, you know, again, I'm putting the cart before the horse, but let's say I pick up chief this year. Yeah. Uh, the units that I'm most likely assigned to my ensign that I'm going to have is going to be an LDO. Right. And so, you know, or, or it'll be a, a CW2. Right. And so, I'm not going to necessarily get to have that experience yeah. of, of having that, you know, I'm, I might, the experience might instead be sitting there and reminding, you know, the sir that they are, they are no longer a chief petty officer. <laughs> yeah. Like they, they're still a chief, happens, right? You can yeah. still come into the mess, but your job right now is not to be a chief with weird rank. Your yeah. job is to be an officer. Um, right. So leading laterally, you know, again, it's, it's credible. Like, you know, that's the one of the places where, where, not trust in terms of trust that you're honest, but credibility in terms of knowing what you're talking about, I think matters the most, right? Because when you're talking about leading peers, that's one of those precepts, ladder type things, you know, mm-hmm. should be involved in peer leadership organizations, AKA, why aren't you doing more with the master sailor 360? Yeah. You're sitting there and you are having to lead from a place where you don't have necessarily the authority to sit there and impose your will yeah. Right. Like you can't just sit there and grab your rank and be like, you're going to do it because I'm a goddamn first class petty officer or I'm a goddamn chief. Yeah. And I've said to do it and you're going to do it. Right. And so it's its ability to sit there and utilize emotional intelligence and functional credibility and people skills to be a functionally good leader. And then leading down, you're unifying all of those things. You have to be both personally credible. Right. You have to be trustworthy. You have to have established those relationships and rapport because 
you know, even though you do have that that big heavy military authority, you can lean on and sit there and say, you know, teammate, you're going to do it because I said that you're going to do it, and yeah. you just need to you just need to shut your mouth. You can do that. It's not going to work out for you for very long, right? Right, because eventually you'll get to a place of malicious compliance or CO suggestion box or a CRT survey or whatever where it's going to blow up right in your face. But yeah. I mean, I guess you can try and see how long it goes, but you have to unify all those aspects of leadership, right? Where in other areas, one single part of that might've been the most important thing to me, you know, leading down, especially leading a large group of a larger group of people down that can present its own unique challenge because the other aspect of it is, you know, if you're dealing with that ensign, you have that one ensign's personality. If you're dealing with the upper chain, you have two or three or four people's personalities to deal with. Yeah. If you're a chief, typically you should have between 10 and 20 people. And the leadership style that's going to work really well with your right-hand man LPO who understands your, your commander's intent isn't necessarily going to work so well with the dude who three weeks ago – or not three weeks ago, but three months ago was – one meal away from being on the streets right and and has a different generational context and a different personal context for everything and maybe you know hey again like i, I don't want to sit there and, and dig too deep into specific scenarios but maybe you know they have a reason that they don't trust male authority figures yeah maybe they have a reason they don't trust male chiefs yeah and if that's the place you're working back from then your ability to recognize those situations and utilize your emotional intelligence and get the right tools at play, both as in terms of leadership tools and maybe interventional tools is going to make the difference between having a successful ability to lead that individual in that group and having a division that maybe that, that does what they do because you're chief and you say to do it, but you're having to sit there and, and do a lot more of that unintentional shared adversity when you're staying at night until 2000 because your division just can't seem to manage to get their <laughs> ship together yeah. and actually close out the job and do an adequate job with X, Y, or Z. Yeah, and right? I think the, the latterly thing, I just wanted to, there was one example I wanted to give because you mentioned like, yeah, you don't have the, you can't exercise legitimate authority in all those situations to like force compliance. But one of the things that I, I think works the best in those types of, of situations is just like the walking the walk thing that we talked about earlier, like leading by example. And a, a funny example that happened to me. So last year, I flew across country to one of my A school instructors final night. Uh, she got selected for chief. And so I flew out for her final night to surprise her. And then because she wanted me to pin her anchors on and I kind of was like, oh, I'm busy. I'm not gonna be able to do it, blah, blah, blah. And then just surprise her. Um, but I was there for the final night and it was with uh, it was a, a kind of a group of commands that had come together, like three commands came together to to pool their resources and stuff and then did final night together. And when I showed up, uh, it was like they got out of the van. Here's an MRE. Eat this. And then we're going to PT. Uh, and so, you know, surpriser said hi. Now she knows I'm there. And then they started PT and like just kind of warming up uh, in the parking lot to get ready to do this run to wherever we were going to do the first event. And so like they're like talking about what we're going to do. And so I'm like getting getting loose, getting ready to PT. Right. And so then they say, OK, push up position and only the selects get in the push up position. And I'm looking around like, yeah, no, you, that's, you can't see it, but I'm shaking my head. Right. I now. know. I believe you. And so that's kind of what I, I looked or le look left, look right. And then I'm like, whatever, I don't even work here. And I get in the push up position. 
And then all the chiefs started looking at me weird. And so then nobody did anything, but they just kind of like let it happen. And I was right in front of the select I came to see. And so they're like down, up, one, down, whatever. And they're calling them out. I'm banging out all these pushups. And so then f- after a minute, you start to see like they move. We move to like squats or something. And so then there's like me, the the chief who was also one of my A school instructors that was her chief on on the ship she was on starts doing stuff with me. And then me, like another chief kind of over there is starts doing squats with me. And then. Like by the time we got done, there was probably half the chiefs that were close enough to feel uncomfortable for not PTing were PTing. And it happened a handful of times during that day where I was just like, I love that part of this, the final night stuff where it's like, I want to do it all with them so that they can see like, no, you actually can do it. You're just deciding to feel like, oh, this is too hard and my soul hurts and whatever. And it's like, I like them to see me just plowing through all the PT with a smile on my face. I still have all this energy and I'm still happy to be here. And I I mean, again, I think that, you know, one, there's, there's some established credibility, you know, factor there, but two, it's just sort of like, you know, I'm just reflecting on what you're saying there. And I'm, I'm thinking about what it would do to me in this day that, you know, like, cause final night is supposed to be a trial, right? Like right. In, at one point there is a literal trial, right? Sorry. Shouldn't. Yeah, it depends. Day. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes yeah, there is, but, sometimes there isn't. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, like at one point you're, you're sitting there, you know, you're going through all this, but it, it's, it's supposed to be kind of like, you know, this metaphorical sea trials where you're, you're proving your salt yeah. all, in, in all the different senses. Right. And I can't imagine how much it would bother me yeah. to sit there and see like, because we, we talked about privilege earlier and this, this is kind of a ring in the conversation, right? Yeah. But that the amount of privilege in, in, in terms of a belief in personal privilege that a group of people would have to have to sit there and be wandering around drinking hot coffee and various mm-hmm. snacks to quote from the, the, you know, genuine's planning guide that I had. Well, the, those folks were eating MREs. Okay, cool. Yeah, fine. And then to have them sit there and start getting beat mm-hmm. and those same dudes are sitting there, you know, sipping nice hot coffee. This isn't buds. Right. Selection is complete. Your, your voice in the selection process was heard. And now it is time to complete your training evolution, right? At least to my perspective. Yeah. And if you're sitting there and you're trying to pretend like, you know, your instructor Pat Stone down on Bud's Beach and boy, it sure would be nice to have some hot coffee right now yeah. and not be running. No, man. Like well, that's, yeah. that's and the I, wrong. And, and, and that's, the, I've, I've seen that very rarely, but I have seen it from, you know, I have, I have run across it. I don't think that's what's at play there, Yeah. but I think that it's not as many steps as we might like between I'm going to stand around and watch the selectees do PT uh, or, you know, be PT'd for whatever reason they're being PT'd at the moment and do nothing and i am fundamentally a you know still a separate being like you know the the i, I think the key word in select in, in cpo selectee to me is selectee mm-hmm. right this individual has been selected to become a chief right at that at that point it's it's the organization's role to sit there and get them hopefully that last hundred yards across the line through that mentality shift, through that military bearing shift, through that little bit of improvement in physical fitness and all that, that they're going to be able to be successful. It 
it shouldn't be a big training evolution and it shouldn't be run as, you know, selection too. Right. And that's something that, you know, you've talked about and I've seen it where there have been selections, they're not selections, but there have been seasons I have been around where it seemed like a big part of the goal was to chase guys or, you know, you know, guys or gals out for whatever reason. It can happen, unfortunately, but like a lot of it gets perceived that way. And a lot of it, a lot of that mentality stemmed from when it used to be a more of a voluntary initiation process versus a mandatory training process. Yeah. Um, And because you get into and I'll talk about it when I do the acceptance episode for Mm -hmm. teaching to the creed. But when you get to acceptance, if you don't think they're ready to be accepted, it's because you failed to prepare them and you, you failed to lead them through this process. And I'll get way deep into that when I get to that topic. But yeah, it's, I think that's what it is, is it's, it's a, but yeah, I I mean, you have to be willing and ready to demonstrate your ability to do the things you're talking about. Right. If, and, and I mean, one of the best illustrations I've seen of it, um, has, it actually happened at a captain's mast. And it was kind of a weird one, but I, I think about this a lot. So this is when I was a baby nuke, when I was at A school. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous CEO, when he conducted mast, he did it in his wash khakis, mm-hmm. right? And so you have the member in their perfectly done dress uniform, and he's walking, and they're walking into an office, and, they, and he did it in his office, right? And and he's in his rumpled wash khakis and just kind of does the thing and. You know, of course, it's a school, so every awardee is pretty much getting 45 and 45 reduction in rate, yeah. half pay times two re- removed from the program. And then we got a new skipper. And the new skipper, he always conducted mast in the seasonal dress uniform. And at one point, he got asked about it at an all-hands call Yeah, because nukes are nukes and they want to know things. Right. And he sat there and he said, if – the sailor who I'm about to potentially kick out of the Navy can be in their dress uniform. Then I can take the 20 minutes it takes for my dress blues to be right. Yeah. If I'm about to kick somebody out of the Navy, if I'm about to take their rank away, if I'm about to remove their liberty, then I should be showing through the way I am dressed that I understand how formal and important that moment is. And he's, this is an 06 saying this to a group of very, very junior E4s. Yeah. But it kind of stuck with me in that it's like I have been in uniform inspections and I know that it's supposed to be when you do a, a dress uniform inspection that the inspector is also supposed to be in his dress uniform, his or her dress uniform. Right. Right. But I've been in plenty of, in, of yeah. inspections where the inspector <laughs> is sitting there in NWUs and I'm standing there <sighs> in in my SDBs yeah. like, wow, oh, I'm, I, I'm yeah. glad that we verified that I could still fit into my uniform, sir. Is there any reason this couldn't have just been if you weren't going to bother like internal dialogue? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, is there any reason that like you you couldn't be bothered to put on your uniform? And I Mm -hmm. if you couldn't be bothered to put on your uniform, this couldn't have just been a hanger inspection to verify that I did, in fact, own a set of ribbons, a warfare (laughs) pin and an appropriately stitched up uniform. Right. Like and, and there's some cynicism there. I understand the utility. I understand that there's some tradition tied up in it. I understand that, hey, but it's that one of the things we're just kind of supposed to do. It's important, but, though. It's not but, like... But I, I mean, that's... Yeah. No, I mean, no, I mean that, that like the, the inspection itself. Right. But, but if but you're going to have me do the inspection, yeah, then demonstrate your ability to perform the task before yeah. you expect to treat it's expect you to perform to perform that task. And I think and that's if you are physically incapable of performing that task. Yeah. Be upright and honest. 
I cannot do this. Yeah. I am not physically capable of it. Uh, or I don't have the technical knowledge to do this. I'm going to be leaning on so and so and so because this this particular development was after uh, the last time that I was able to attend the school. I'm going to be observing and learning with, along with you guys. Yeah, but that piece right? that piece of the mechanism, like as particularly for uniform inspection, is built in for a reason, and the reason yeah. is to create like the compliance that you're seeking by demonstrating to them the importance of it. Like I took the time to prepare my uniform. This is what the uniform is supposed to look like. It's like I'm the compliance that I'm seeking or the, the thing that I want them to do is going to be by. accomplished. Stand by what happened. Come on. Did we break it? Briefly. No, it's back up. See it. No, I mean, we're, we're still on. What happened was I got up and I pulled the power cord out of the back of my laptop. Oh, okay. I fiddled with my laptop and long enough that it was like, oh, okay. I haven't been touched in, you know, <laughs> in, in, in 15 minutes. So I don't have power anymore. Sleep mode time. Gotcha. So, okay. But it did. It's yeah. still recording. We're all good. Uh, yeah. Just, so we should be know, fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the you're going to get the the you're going to accomplish the task that you want to accomplish by by meeting those little wickets. Um, just like I, the I, I would imagine that you're going to get less sailors at captain's mass by approaching it the way that that captain did. You know what I mean? Like just from that little piece of it, I bet you that that was like, I don't want to disappoint this man Yeah. after he 100%. explained that. Yeah. Like you're so what that little tiny thing probably accomplished a lot more than he ever intended it to. No. And, and I mean, it was, you know, that same mast, it was, it was kind of a side, you know, a little brief sea story. This guy was going up to mass for the second time. He knew he was getting kicked out of the Navy. He knew he was getting dropped from the program. He was getting busted to E1. And, you know, as every master, a master awardee is offered the opportunity to offer up a statement. And he chose to do so. Right. And the statement that he offered up was a rap. Wow. And the rap in question was, you know, he, he offered it as a written statement. And it was about, you know, how he was going to, you're going to have to beat this. Okay. Wow. And the skipper sat there and to his his credit looked the kid straight in his face and read the sta- statement verbatim. Yeah, he probably <laughs> like <laughs> so and sat there and then at the end, after he, and then there was a bunch of other, you know, equally like just terrible things. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the, and like the guy called himself like I'm dirty dirty whatever, right? Yeah. And he goes, uh so fireman apprentice whatever this dude's name is is that an accurate you know is that is that an accurate version of your your written statement and of course this dude who would kind of he he'd almost strutted into mast a little bit at, at this point he suddenly realizes just how badly he's screwed what an idiot when you know you have an, a an 06 nuclear you know submarine officer wearing horn-rimmed glasses with a, a stack that's about six inches of ribbons it's about six inches tall yeah you know reading your rap about the terrible things you intend to do to him that that has to be there i have to hope that he had a moment of reflection of what was what had gone wrong and wrong in his life to this moment i'm I'm sure he did but yeah like i I think that you know just treating it with formality right like this isn't this isn't just another part of my day this isn't, you know, my wardroom meeting or me going over and reviewing, you know, going and walking into a classroom to do a, 
a teaching observation, which were also parts of his day that day. Right. Right. You know, it's like this is the I, you know, I think in some ways, you know, conducting NJP is one of the most serious things a CEO probably in the top two or three most serious things a CEO can do. My last CEO talked about how the night before he conducts an the night before he awarded somebody NJP, he would be up all night considering yeah. what, if any punishment he was going to award at that mast. Yeah, I've never met a CEO that hasn't like agonized over that stuff. And I don't think it's perceived by the crew the way that it actually happens. Like those, no. they agonize over that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that you can't, you know, m- most CEOs I've known have been pretty insightful people mm. and they're, you know, they can't help but know that like, say, you know, you take me up to mass today, right? Okay. I'm a senior first class. Uh, I am past the point. I'm past higher tenure from my rank. Uh, I do something dumb. I go out and get a DUI. My skipper takes me up. She busts me to E5. I'm out of the Navy in like four months. Yep. Okay. I'm done. And like, yeah, obviously that's that's a pretty good baseball bat to the head in terms of, of personal impact for me. But, you know, I don't know a whole lot of skippers that even in facing that where it's one of those cases where, yeah, this this is a place where you max a dude out uh, because he's done one of the most basic things that we tell sailors not to do from 30 seconds into the Navy. And he's a senior sailor that's supposed to be an exemplar that they wouldn't sit there and have that moment of reflection of like, I'm about to ruin this dude's life. And yeah, yeah. he took actions that led to this. Like this is a consequence of actions that he, this, this person undertook. But by the same token, this is going to be a nearly irrecoverable blow I'm about to inflict. Right. So yeah, I, I like that skippers think that way. I think that making it a public thing also like not, not just the mast itself, but the, the, the sort of active reflection and the active uh, of thought makes it matter. And yeah, some of it's about disappointment, but some of it's also about like, okay, this isn't just a dude who like whatever the, the, the mess and the exo sends him gets, you know, max, max and done. There's reflection and thought that's going into this. And so, yeah, I, I need to sit there and consider my actions. And maybe this, this is, this is a lot of conscious links of thought that aren't occurring, but I think functionally they are. If my punishment is going to be considered that deeply, if I get caught doing something wrong, maybe the action that leads into that punishment should be you know, deeply considered as well. Not just because I don't want to disappoint him, but because this is a real thing that has real impact. Yeah. Right. I can't blow this off and ignore it. But yeah, it's it's that leading by example thing that, you know, we talk about endlessly, but it's a simple demonstration of, yeah, if, if this is something that matters and it is then I can take the time to be there in the right place at the right time in the right uniform. Right. So So let's shift to the, what's the difference between loyalty to the institution versus loyalty to individuals? Hmm. So, you know, I, I, I want to ask a clarifying question in this. When we say institution, are we talking about the Navy, the nation? I imagine that you'd be talking about, like I, in in talking about it, the Navy would have the subcategories of like your mess and your unit, et cetera, would all kind of qualify as institution. Mm-hmm. So, again, like my, my read on that, you know, I'm going to default to de- sailor development on something like this. Is it good to have sailors that respect you on a personal basis? Yes, of course it is. And it's it's important 
right? We've spent a lot of time talking about rapport and credit and personal credibility. Right. Okay. But you also need to sit there and you need to be Navy. That's actually something I've been working really hard on uh, personally in the last few months has been, you know, I realized that I had a lot of personal credibility with my peers, with my uh, juniors, with my leaders as me. And to a certain extent as a sailor, but particularly with juniors, you know, they didn't see me as being necessarily a first class petty officer. They saw me as being the goofy, nice guy with cool sea stories. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I don't, there was, there was no inappropriate relationship of any kind going on, but I kind of realized, oh yeah, I, I need to be a first class, right? Yeah. Like, you, you need to these do, aren't yeah. my sailors. You need to do both. Like, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I, I want to be approachable. And especially in the job that I had, it was absolutely critical that I be incredibly easy, easily approachable because, you know, I was that, that first line of Navy representation for a lot of these kids or not first line of not, not as an LPO, but like a first line of accessible, bigger Navy representation. Hey, I have right. a question about this program. Can you, can you walk me through it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. But I also need to sit there and be those three chevrons. And so some, and, and if you're not sitting there and you're not doing both, then, you know, you may develop personal loyalty, but then you leave. Like we all leave someday, right? Yeah. Whether it's the sailor leaving the ship or the, the ship or the ship leaving the sailor, uh, you know, it, it's going to happen. And you're going to get to this point where if you leave and you've established all this personal credibility and you have a personal brand, you know, where you're, you know, senior chief Bob and your CSs will do anything, they'll die for you. And then you leave and the guy that shows up next, he's not as good as you. And he's not as personable. Maybe he's a little bit, he cares a little bit more about haircuts or he's not in good shape. He, he's not necessarily walking the walk. Part of the work that has to be put in both by the institution as a whole to sit there and help sustain and maintain that credibility. And by you as an individual, to my perspective, is the work that, you know, like you are representing the organization. Um, and I think that ties back to the mess as well, where, you know, that scene, that a gang chief that, that we had on my boat that came and said, Hey, if you need chief stuff, then, and, and you, you don't feel like you're getting it from somebody else. You can come to me, you know, and I, like we all got the message, which was like, I recognize that your chief is not a very good chief and he's not taking care of you. And thus, you know, if you need help, I, as a chief who is not your chief and is barely even sort of technically in your department. Yeah. Right. You know, cause a gang engineering, like, but I'm, yeah. I'm going to be there for you. I right. will walk into the mess and pound the table on your behalf. Yeah. But right? even, even if that's not the case, like I found a lot of success with, with the type of loyalty that you're talking about, like building the type of loyalty in the chief's mess, not just in me as an individual by going outside of my division and like, I'd be duty mm -hmm. chief. I would always tour the engine room and review logs and hang out maneuvering and talk to the nukes and like just sit there and joke around with them. Go talk to the watch standers, do around with the blow such a weird experience the first time that happened because it, it freaked him out, man. Like every time I would go back down back there and review like shutdown roving watch logs, which is like 90 pages long. They yeah. would just what? Are, what? You want to review what? And I'm like, I'm going to review your logs, dude. Like it's an expectation the CO had that the duty chief toured the engine room. 
which never happened. It was just no. me. Like, so every one of them was like, oh, my God, he's actually doing it. Like, and uh, but they loved it. Like, they, it was hilarious to them that I would come hang out and, and I'd ask him stupid questions. And like, then like we got to a point where that rapport existed, where like I was still senior and they knew that there was a bright, you know, khaki colored line that you just don't cross. But mm-hmm. it was super obvious. And it was like one they didn't want to cross anyway. Yeah. And so it was like they but they also knew that somebody somebody else's line could be in a different place where they wouldn't be comfortable asking me the types of questions that they would. And we would sit there and have discussions about stuff that junior sailors post on Reddit. They would ask me, like, why do chiefs care if you have your hands in your pockets? And like, why do you guys do this? What do you guys do during those meetings? Like and I'd have the types of conversations with them that I have on this podcast. And it's like, I, I don't. I think you gain a lot by doing yeah, that 100%. In, in the, in very, this very much the same way that that's a gang senior chief did by sitting down with you guys and saying, Hey, you have a resource outside of just your chief. Yeah. And I mean, I think, a, I think a big part of it also in that moment is it's that accessibility, right? I think that's one of those yeah. things that a lot of chiefs within their divisions, departments and troops kind of fail at like, yeah, you know, you don't need to be everybody's friend. I don't expect my chief to be my friend, right? Right. But I also sit there and like I should never be scared to ask my chief a question. And I right. know you still need to be accessible. That, yeah, yeah, I know sailors that they're afraid of their chief. Like yeah. that's absolutely unacceptable to me. This isn't. We're not draftees, right? Everybody's volunteered some number of times to be sitting in that seat of that operational unit. Okay. So, you know, does everybody need a hug and a kiss and, you know, a pat on the butt all the time? No. Right. Like that's, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that, that, that we, we need to be the kindest, gentlest Navy in the history of navies, Right. But I think that that needs to be, it needs to be understood that people volunteered to be there. And so, yeah, if you have a sailor that's willing to sit there and, and put it out on the line by asking you a question, then they should not be afraid of the consequences or not the consequences, but afraid of that you're going to sit there and mock them, be angry at them, you know, right. whatever. And I've seen that and that bothers the hell out of me. Yeah. And I think sometimes it, it can be like just based on the training pipeline that got them there, they come in there with that fear mm-hmm. because RDCs are RDCs and, you know, mm-hmm. like A school instructors and MTIs are A school instructors and MTIs. So you can have that kind of fear. And I like I I saw myself practice that even as an A school instructor is like like I don't want them to be afraid of me and me being a chief wearing khaki sorks so it's like I I started to like yes I'm still chief or I'm still senior but break down a lot of those barriers to communication where it's like I need to be approachable you need to not have fear of raising your hand and asking me a silly question um. <laughs> You know, I, here's here's a thought I've had kind of listening to you talk about it. I feel like you had a little bit like at CSA school in particular, I have to imagine that you had a little bit more credibility in some ways on that, partly because of your personality, yeah. but partly because having been a real cook, for lack of a better way of putting it, like mm-hmm. don't don't want to hurt any CS feelings, <laughs> but like having actually worked on a real line. Yeah. Um, and having had to sit there and teach somebody how to make a dish before mm-hmm. and that, that was that wasn't necessarily culinary trained, you you I think might have had a different skill set that isn't as well developed um yeah. in in Navy leadership. 
right? You know, I don't know. I mean, that's just a thought. Potentially, I have. Like, yeah. I, you know, I think a lot of it came from being a submariner and yeah. being classically trained to like, because yeah. I came there with a fancy culinary degree and that helped a lot. Uh, I mean, th- that's, that's what I'm getting at is like, yeah. you know, I, I also had a chef in, in the, the last restaurant that I worked at before I joined the Navy, you know, like who, who would have been, who would, who could have given toxic leadership lessons to chiefs. And the last straw what for me was I had a day where it was brunch service. And as is the long held tradition among line cooks, working brunch, I was hung over angry <laughs> and I had a, I burned an omelet right yeah. now. And, and I want to be clear, you'll understand this. Okay. Uh, I didn't burn it as in like, it wasn't like, brown dry yeah it wasn't dried out i literally had like a single spot where it wasn't that perfect beautiful lovely yep. french yellow yeah on the underside of it and this was a sauce omelet right <laughs> so you wouldn't so, even see it so yeah they, they, they would never seen it never notice it and chef for whatever reason got him mm-hmm. and sat there and lifted it up and he saw that little tiny less than a pinky nail size bit of brown and he yelled my name and he turned and he threw that plate yeah. <laughs> at my station like a softball yeah or not like a softball like a baseball right yeah. and i had just enough awareness because this is a little bitty kitchen to yeah. sit there and duck <laughs> yeah and the plate shattered i got covered in just splattered french omelet and I tore my apron off my whites and I just walked out. That's what got me to quit uh, the last job I had before the Navy. I, I mean, I ended up working at a, so the owners were great. Like they, I mean, management tried to talk me out of leaving because I was the chef's, I was like his right hand man, mm-hmm. but he would treat me like garbage all the time. He was real bipolar. Like he would lo- love me and then hate me really hard and then love me and then hate me. And I just got sick of it. And there was this one and, episode that just it was similar to that it it was more of like a screaming for no reason kind of thing but um where i just was like yeah i'm this is stupid i'm 17 like i'm not doing this anymore (laughs) like yeah and so i i left a note on the door of the chef's office who had gone home and i was like yeah i'm done have a nice life and i kind of explained why like his toxic leadership essentially was why i was just like i'm not willing to to put up with the punishment anymore because i don't deserve it yeah, it's an and, interesting thing that. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, I was, and I walked out, and they tried to talk me out of it, and I ended up just working at another one of their establishments for a guy I had worked for before that was amazing. He was like one of the sous chefs at the place I had just quit, and they had moved him over to run this other place, and he was amazing. I'm like, yeah, I'll go work for him yesterday. Let's do it. You know, so one that's of the what things uh, Tony Bourdain talked about quite a bit uh, when he came and gave talks before he took his own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, was specifically that he regretted in Kitchen Confidential the fact that he kind of glamorized yeah, some yeah. of that macho that macho crap. Right? That's a great and, book, though. Uh, <laughs> That's a great book. No, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I I feel like there's a lot of leadership lessons for a lot of people yeah. if they wanted to look at it both in the kitchen broadly and particularly like you read some of, of Tony's stories that he wrote in mm-hmm. Kitchen Confidential and some of the other things. Uh, like he just, the dude lived, right? Yeah. And he had done the whole show. And like one of the things, you know, he has a short story where he talks about, you know, it's risk management basically. Yeah. Where he had a chef he worked for that just had 
terrible poor kitchen management and terrible risk management. And, you know, on a $400 a plate New Year's, just screwed every possible thing up that he possibly could, got basically nothing plated. And just the next year, you know, it was Tony's show and he took zero risks. And yeah, you know, was it not as exciting and dynamic as the menu that the last year's chef had prepared? Absolutely. It was everybody ate a meal. (laughs) Everybody got food. And, you know, at 1215, you know, they were tearing down. Right. Yeah. Whereas, you know, he talked about it being like two thirty in the morning and like apps were, you know, first round apps were still going out. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, man. It's sorry. Uh, it, yeah. You know, no this, 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 this is us, you know, talking our art stuff, you know, food yeah. stuff. But <laughs> like uh, when you talked about walking the walk, we talked about credibility. Yeah. Um, so the step next is the we're going to get into responsibilities and privileges a little more. But got the, it. It's oh, the yeah. reading so, the 1918 Blue Jackets manual. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I read through it. Like, is is there a particular stuff that you you want? No, it's so it's the there's just a question in relation to the entire article, right? So it's uh, mm-hmm. the it's have our responsibilities changed all that much since 1918, which is a pretty. That's a really broad question. Yeah, it's a, it's um, kind of an easy question, but then it's kind of a, if you stop stop and think about it for a minute, it's like so it's such a broad like. I mean, hard the, to answer question. The the obvious answer, of course, is yeah, of course, our responsibilities have changed because we have computers and email yeah. and all these accountability measures. Where right, and you know, what in 1918 you could yeah, we're not supposed to flog people anymore, but I guarantee you, <laughs> you know, if if it was if, a way different navy, that's for sure. If if the chief steward on the boat wanted to sit there and wall to wall the the cook's boy for a while because he managed to sit there and spill some coffee like he could get away with it nobody was going to question it sure right but yeah it's a different navy of course the responsibilities are different i think but if you look at some of the fundamentals like for me that that summary piece is what really hits it yeah and that was the follow-on discussion question is does this apply to today's navy if so how like the content of the, the actual message of the article i think there's aspects that apply to it Yes, I think a lot of it did a lot. I I, I think a lot of it did. I think some of it, you know, there needs to be a um, a a little bit of a delta in understanding and sort of the way that the Navy works these days. Right. Yeah. So some of it is like that first one, you know, you must have expert knowledge on every detail that applies to your branch of the profession. So we we tend to really, you know, as junior sailors, I include myself in this. I I will occasionally sit there and dump on a chief, you know, when I'm talking to somebody else, if, if he doesn't have the ability to sit there and solve problems at least as well as I can, right. When it comes to technical stuff, but I'm also sitting there, you know, same, that same Lieutenant commander I told you I talked to, right. She talked to us like, yeah, basically from the day that we had somebody, you know, put on E6, like, we, we have them start focusing on admin on to an even greater degree, writing evals, sale of the quarter yeah. packages, this large administrative package. Is that part of leadership? Is that part of the profession? Yes, absolutely. Like we can sit there and pretend that all day long that, you know, like, oh, this is just additional stuff. But no, like evaluating your people and providing that truth and reporting that we spent a good bit of time talking about earlier. That's a part of the profession, particularly as you get into that leadership piece. So, yeah, you need to be proficient at that. And, yeah, there's going to be a degree to which 
you as a senior first or as a chief or as a senior chief or a master chief, right? Do I think that my CMC at my command, who is a former tactical communicator, could go out and from memory do a nine line uh, and a nine line call for fire accurately and safely with uh, an aircraft platform firing heavy ordnance? No. A master chief should be like an extra, extra, extra chief by some of the broad logic, right? So he should be the most expert. We've diverted some from that idea of the chief as the technical leader, the ask the chief thing over into having chiefs be leader leaders. You know, you've talked about it. I've talked about it. The most important thing we get to, we get to do as in, in the roles that we have is take care of people is to take care of sailors. That's job one. And if it's, if that's job one, then job one can't be being the expert, you know, expert in on every, every detail of the profession, right? Mm -hmm. You have to accept at some point there's going to be a balance because you have to live a regular human life to a certain extent as well. The next thing though, your duties in uh, in training and instructing men of lower ratings are even more important than your duties in connection with the material. Yep. Yeah. No, that, 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 that is the, one of the most succinct ways that we can say what I just said. Yeah. Possible. Okay. Yeah. Uh, conduct must be entirely above reproach in your daily life set to an example from both a, from a personal as well as a professional point of view. Mm-hmm. I, I think I can broadly concur with that. Uh, I think that, yeah, walk the talk and set the example. I think that the idea that chief must constantly be, a, you know, a place of moral perfection, I think that reflects the time that reflects that it was 102 years ago yeah. and we were dealing with a more religiously driven and conservative society broadly and that you as a chief, you would be even more in the role of a parent than you are now where you might have a literal child that you are responsible for the care feeding and raising of, because we had in 1918, we still on a fairly regular basis did not, not, not everybody was a, you know, a a 22 year old, right? I think the average age of the Navy is significantly older now than it was then. And certainly, even if they were an 18-year-old, you know, an 18-year-old kid from Kansas who has never done, who didn't finish high school and has never done anything but work on a farm, his, the level of seasoning he's going to need to be successful and functional as a sailor might be a little bit higher than, you know, say you or I who worked real world jobs for years before we joined the Navy, right? Whatever your special branch, always bear in mind the military side of life complies strictly with the formalities of military life and require the same of your juniors. Okay. So this is something that I've run into is sort of this weird idea that I've, I've heard from chiefs on more than one occasion. And I'm going to bounce it off of you and see if this is maybe just that I had a couple of weird chiefs that had weird ideas, uh, which was, and I think it ties into this, was that like as a chief, you should sit there and be uh, able to do any job or you should be able to chief any division of the Navy. You know, you as a CSCS, you should be able, and I think we talked about this last time, and yeah. come to a tactical communications command and take a troop forward. And it's like, no, like. Uh, so, I, yeah, you know, you get into like that CMC discussion where yeah. um, it's like if because the and this is a weird distinction. So like I talk to people about the difference between being a cob and being a CMC, and there's there are things that as a cob 
like like a, an aviation CMC couldn't come be a Cobb tomorrow, but a Cobb could go be an aviation CMC tomorrow. And it's not that there's not a steeper learning curve for that submarine Cobb to go, get selected for CMC and then go be an aviation CMC. It's there are not their role is not the same in that the expectation of that CMC is like leadership, administration, and a lot of institutional expertise. Yep. And as a cob, I'm expected to be the subject matter expert on a whole bunch of submarine specific stuff like ships control, yeah. <laughs> top no, side safety and line handling. You, so yeah, you, you know, yeah. you're, you're you, you st- like, I mean, the, the simplest way to put it is as a cob, you're standing watch. Effectively. Yeah. It's, yeah. No, I mean, yeah. you, you like, like, I mean, at least on my boat, my cob was in the watch rotation. So that's not common. And I would actually say is a terrible idea if. It's okay. happening because it, it did happen a lot. And I like there are times where so like if I'm a, if I qualify Cobb, which I will, and I it's just a dependent upon BUMED actually letting me do it. But mm-hmm. if I go back to sea as a Cobb and I have to stand three section dive, something's terribly wrong because there should be plenty of qualified dives to stand at least a three section rotation. No, no, to, we we had like nine. We had like nine dudes qualified dive. Yeah, so, there, like, so he, there's no there's no reason the cob should be standing dive, and it's because the cob is expected to be effect like a ship's control program manager. Like you're supposed to be supervising the dive. You're supposed it. to be making sure that PD trips are happening the way that they're supposed to, and that they're like so on boomers that you're trained for battle stations missile appropriately. You can go dive, go to dive one SQ appropriately, and you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be super, a supervisory and training element, and you can't do that if you're sitting in the chair. Um, it, again, it happens. Like, there's a good chance that because so the way that Cobb qualifications happen is you get graded on tiers. And if you're a tier one graded Cobb, you're going to go to a boat that has problems. So, there's a good chance you're going to go to a boat that has not enough qualified dives, and you might have to do that until you fix that, which yeah. it's going to be a challenge, but it's obviously not ideal. But and I mean, yeah, that might have that might have been my boat. That it might have may have been. It, it, it might have been. been that like he showed up and he was like, "You guys are all qualified to stand this watch, but I think I need to be in the rotation until I'm comfortable that all of you are actually fully right. capable of standing this watch." Well, yeah, right? may may have been that. May have been he wanted to demonstrate that they were doing it wrong by sitting down and showing them what right looked like. I it yeah. just depends. I, I mean, on it could the be scenario. any number of things. Yeah. But I mean, the the bottom line is that in a very real and meaningful way, CMCs at uh, an an aviation squadron or even on a surface ship, you know, their equivalent role in that is going to be involved with, is going to be involved with involvement with ESWAS. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and like, yeah, I obviously I know that you do a cob walk through when you get your fish and that whole thing. Right. But like, that's going to be their closest equivalent role in terms of like a systems mm-hmm. qualification and quality control role that they're going to have. Otherwise, right. they're going to be much more focused on the broader administrative tasks. Yeah, leadership and man- management you know, administration, um, institutional expertise. But the yeah. to answer your question that you originally had, which was like that any chief should be able to walk into any division and chief super hard, like... If you put me in a weird spot where I'm like, because like me and me talking to like EODC, there's a 0% chance I could do his job. I could come in and help in an administrative and leadership and management function. Sure. Planning's planning. Uh, institutional expertise is institutional expertise. There's a lot of things I could probably do there that would be useful. But to say I could be an EODC is insane. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of communities that would be like that. 
But there are also like if you put me on a surface ship tomorrow and said, hey, uh, we know you're CS, but these AOs need a chief really badly. And we're going to put you in that role. It would suck for a while mm-hmm. and there'd be a real steep learning curve, but I'd figure it out and, and I'd lean real hard on that LPO for the expertise piece of it. But it, when you go from division to division on certain platforms, there's like 3M functions and mate, like the there's uh, like administrative functions and like planning functions and scheduling functions. And it's like a lot of my experience would translate and, and obviously I would not be an expert on AO things, but I could do a lot of chief things to help that division that would valuably contribute in a way that would be better than not having a chief at all. If that, if that makes sense, like I'm not going to replace the expertise and experience of an AOC, but I could help that division in a lot of chief functions that would benefit them a lot more than not having a chief and trying to just let this LPO be an LPO and be a chief. So, so replacing no, but could I go be a chief for them? Yeah. A hundred percent. So it's just it's I I would say yeah. it's like very situationally based, and, and but there's I, a lot of th- that's that's a place where this still kind of kind of hits, yeah. Right where you know it is that milit- that fundamentals of military leadership, right? Mm. And that yeah, you know you are expected to be an institutional expert on haircuts and uniforms and shoes and saluting and by your leave, sir, as being the right way to pass officers, right? Which I've known O's that didn't know that. Right. Yeah. got very confused when that happened. Yeah. Um, and formations. I I will never stop questioning the utility of marching because I feel like I, I think it's just a personal bias thing because I'm not good at it. Right. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's an opportunity to show how much I'm not good at something every time we have to, you know, attempt to do it. Yeah. But my yeah, my problem isn't with marching so much as military ceremony. It like. I've never gone to a, a a military ceremony, retirement ceremony, a promotion ceremony, a change of command or whatever, and not cringed at the lack of military bearing and just smartness yeah. of the movements and stuff. And I think that's the only thing that I, I like. Those things are important to a lot of people. You don't get a mulligan on somebody's retirement yeah, ceremony. No, so I think military drill and, and smartness in those formations and movements is really important. And I wish was practiced a little more, I guess. But at the same time, it's like the, the utility of marching. There, there isn't one. <laughs> like it's, it's not, like not anymore. It's more a tradition now than anything else. Yeah. And I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I think that it's, you know, the reason it's stuck around is because it is a good way to teach teamwork and yeah. unity. Right. Yeah. You it's, know, for sure. I think it's, it's a way to it's a way to kind of build the the just the military manner and the military professionalism into a new accession sailor as well. So like I don't I don't think it doesn't have a utility in that pipeline, but I, I would say that it's it's more of a teamwork and team building yeah. exercise when you're talking about chief's initiation. Um, it's like because yeah. because we know you haven't marched in a decade like we know that yeah. you get, you're going to fumble through it because everyone does. We know you're going to go have to read the book on how to construct and carry a guide on like we know unless you were an RDC and you got like retrained like I was an mm-hmm. NMT NMTI LCPO. So like I managed that program and I got all back into those books and reintegrated myself into that mindset. And I was training sailors on 
marching cadence, military formations all the time. So I got really good at it. Uh, It's been a while since I've done it at this point, but I still remember a lot of that fresher than a lot of other chiefs would that haven't haven't had the opportunity to get refreshed by going through some types of a training command and, and having to do those things. But I think it's a, at the beginning, it's a great way to just build a, a military member, like the military yeah. good order oh, discipline to- and professionalism, and like, whatever. Concurrence. And then, yeah. yeah, it's definitely just a team building exercise when you get to chiefs initiation. It's it's because yeah. we know you're going to not have any idea what you're doing. That's the whole point is that it's, you got to figure it out, work together as a team, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, it's, yeah. That's the only reason you um, see that. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's that, uh, that skill set. I understand why, you know, that's, you know, like, like and I, I get what it's birthing. And I think that still applies. Mm-hmm. And I think that last one, that is, um, if there's a single stanza of this, this little five portion summary that rings true today and hopefully in all the days that we continue to have a Navy and have a chief's mess. Yours is a position of honor and responsibility. Do your work from a sense of duty. Be thorough in all you do and require of your subordinates thoroughness and military exactitude. Yeah. Okay. I You you captured a lot of the things that like, so I had the paragraphs highlighted that it was like, I really liked the stuff on standards and sense of duty and sense of responsibility um, that, that like, explain, the way it was explained and articulated and the words chosen to talk about like, like, yeah, you, you're a chief of your division, but when you're walking around the ship and you encounter something that's wrong, what do you do? How do you deal with it? Blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of the way that those things were articulated. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just kind of read at, at like I look at that and I I see the kind of, you know, idea of the. Uh, if if we want to have something like if, if we could we could honestly there's elements of the creed you know, that we could replace, I think, and have be more effective with those five stances. That is almost like when we talked about this last time, yeah. one of the things we talked about is how I look at a creed and it should be a statement of purpose and function of an organization, right? Mm, yeah. This five stanzas to me, and this is a personal bias, right? In a lot of ways, does a better job of functioning as an actual, like the chief petty officer's creed as a, this is who we are. Yeah. Than what the current creed is. Now, that's not to say that the current creed doesn't still have utility, but like I am a United States Navy chief petty, petty officer. By virtue of my promotion, I am in a position where I must have expert knowledge of every detail that applies to my branch and rating. My duties in training and, restri- and instructing my sailors of lower rank are even more important than my duties and expertise in my rating. My conduct must be entirely above reproach. And my daily life will set the example for each and every sailor from a personal and professional point of view. Whatever my branch and whatever my rating, my military example will be outstanding at all times. I will set the standard by which all sailors are judged in the U.S. Navy and across the world. My position is one of special honor and responsibility. I will work from a sense of duty. I will be thorough and excellent in everything that I do, and I will require the same of my subordinates through thoroughness and hard work. Yeah, dude, I like like you got my vote. <laughs> like you know, it, like I'm not talking about how ask the chief is a household name. I'm not talking about how for the last 18 hours you had to do a lot of push-ups. 
Yeah. Right. And and maybe had somebody say some not nice things to your to your face. Right. I am talking about a statement of function and purpose of what we are as an organization. Right. And I say we, you know, obviously I'm not a member of this organization, yeah. but that's what it should be like to me. And it is it is one of the weirdest little things that always it's, it always sucks a little air out of the room for me when I listen to a group of new chief selectees sit there and spend five minutes reciting that creed. Right. Because it's also so long and yeah. so kind of oddly phrased that it's very difficult to get 20 dudes to manage to successfully say the whole thing in unison. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, that last one to me, it, I mean, it applies to any sailor, really. Any sailor in a supervisory position, position of honor and respectability, you need to do your job from a sense of duty, not just because you're getting a paycheck. Yeah. Because that paycheck is not going to be enough to sustain you when you're getting shot at. Everything you do matters and you need to require of your subordinates and you need to be thorough and you need to, you know, remember that you are in the military, that this isn't just a weird club where we all wear the same, you know, a weird job where we all wear the same clothes every day and sometimes, you know, have a job that involves the Iranians threatening to launch missiles at us. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, again, personal biases at play. But no, I, I, you, we've had discussions several times, me and other people, uh, I've talked to, Paul Kingsbury and a bunch of other people about like the kind of evaluating the content of the creed currently. And is it, does it have the utility that you're talking about? Like, does it state the things that we want to be and that we need in our Navy right now? And if it doesn't, like, what could we do about that? And um, I mean, I think one of the biggest things to me is that it's, it's all you, the, the, the the creed is you as a, is all you statements, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's second person. Yeah. And to me, a creed should be first person. It should be I and we. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I mean, I know it's it's a weird thing to get really picky on, but yeah. you think about the Nicene Creed. Right. We are one body, one united Catholic church, the Sailor's Creed, uh, the Rifleman's Creed. I, I can't think of another creed in the U.S. military that is written is five paragraphs of conversation in some ways. And yeah. I mean, Hey, the chief's mess is a somewhat unique, a unique organization. If you consider the coast guard chief's mess and the Navy chief's mess to be sort of a unique or a mixed organization. So I generally <laughs> have seen coast guard chiefs and U S Navy chiefs be treat each other as brother and sister chiefs. Right. right. Well, um, that's, what's funny to, to me about some of the content of the, and we'll talk about it. We're going to get to that here in a second, but yeah. Um, some of the content of the creed saying in the Navy and only in the United States Navy. And it's like, actually, mm -hmm. <laughs> actually we, inaccurate we, because we, the we Coast Guard, a, a fellow service that yeah. is, uh, yeah, <laughs> the Coast Guard built their chief's mess off mm -hmm. of the United States Navy's model and they did it. And it, it, like, if you read their history of the chief, and I'm going to put the link in the in the show mm -hmm, notes, mm -hmm. where if you read the history of the chief on their U.S. Coast Guard CPOA website, it talks about that specifically. And it talks about like us being peers and equals. And it's like, so it's it's hilarious that we still say that of when course. it's like we yeah. have a have a an, ex, an organization that is modeled off of exactly what we do and that do the same things they do an initiation they have a mess they do it's all 
very similar, if not the same. Um, mm-hmm. And so I thought that was interesting, but we'll talk about that more here in a minute. Okay. Uh, let's move on to the responsibilities and privileges. This is the exercise that I mentioned earlier. People are going to break up into small groups and they're going to list responsibilities of a chief and then privileges of a chief and see how those things differ. So for the sake of the discussion, well, I'm just going to ask you the questions. What are the responsibilities of a chief petty officer? And then what are the privileges of a chief petty officer and how do they differ? So, I mean, to me, the the responsibility and there's, there's, there's a degree of congruence between the biggest privilege and the biggest responsibility. Yeah. Um, which is not to put too fine a point on it, but care and feeding of sailors. Yep. Right. Like that's exactly what I listed was leading and caring for sailors. Like like, that's like, you know, the the biggest responsibility, biggest privilege. The American people have given us their children. Yeah. Okay. They have given us their sons and daughters and placed them in trust to us as leaders. There is no heavier burden that we could possibly carry and no greater honor that we could possibly be given. Hundred percent agree. You know, like like that's that's what it is. And then building your replacement, right? You know, one of the big privileges I had is like I didn't like being a recruiter. I was pretty open about that on the last podcast. Yeah. But one of the kind of really cool things that I still reflect on sometimes is I had the opportunity for a few for a couple of years to pick my replacements. Yeah. And yeah, it was sometimes was the the picking kind of questionable in terms of it being more like find somebody. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> you know, but at the end of the day, when I retire from the Navy in four or five years, okay, there will be people who are still in the Navy because I brought them in. Yeah. There will be officers, there will be Navy SEALs, there will be bosun's mates and sonarmen and nukes. And every other job you could think of that they will be serving their country and they wouldn't have been doing it if I hadn't been sitting at a sitting at a station or sitting in a station or talking to them on the street or calling them on the phone. Right. And so getting to choose that your replacement. Well, that that was my role then. Now my role is to getting to to again, it's it's that responsibility. Right. Yeah. Uh, now I got to build that guy. Right. Because I I'm leaving. Three or four years, or you know, three between three and five years from now, I am I'm I'm hanging up my you know my navy hat, and I'm never putting it on again. Like that, that'll be the the last. You know, there will be a last day I put on a set of camis. Yeah, and that's fine. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. We all have to grow. We all have to learn. We all have to move on. But now is the time where you've got to sit there and build that future, both the future technician and the future leader. And also sit there and help mentor them. And they choose to get out of the Navy. Part of your job is to help them do that well, right? The responsibility doesn't stop just because they're not going in, going on for forever. Um, uh, I mean, if I want to look at it from a chiefy perspective, you know, like something we've already talked about a lot, you know, it's it's. You know, you, you carry that that anchor carries with it the weight of every chief that has ever chiefed before you and every chief that will chief after you. Right. Yeah. Like. And so. You, word and deed matters. Sometimes you're digging yourself out of a pit because 10 minutes before you walked into that door for the first time, 
you know, there was a chief in there that was sitting there and telling that whole division that they were all worthless pile of shit. Yeah. And, you know, or, or there was a chief that may have been sexually, physically abusive to the sailors. That's the thing that still happens. Yeah. Right. That stain is just as present on your anchor as the heroism of yeah. Chief Keating or of the FCC on of, of, of any chief that you want to sit there. You carry that too. You're, you're carrying Master Chief Byers and Master Chief Slavinsky's medals of honor in that anchor. You're carrying the chiefs who went down with the ship on our, on, on our eternal patrol, uh, you know, across the Pacific. You're carrying the chiefs that were on Scorpion and Thresher. You're carrying the chiefs that were on coal. You're carrying the, you know, the, 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 the weight of the sailors that died in McCain, you're, you're carrying the, you, that, that, that's, that, that's what that anchor means. Every chief that has ever been a chief that has acted honorably or dishonorably, you are them. Yeah. That's what the unity of the mess means to me. And so, yeah, privilege, certainly in that, you're a part of that list. You're a part of that history. You're a part of that legacy. You are a part of the story of the Navy chief petty officer, right? Like, and you always will be if you, you know, if you're somebody who's selected, you know, for somebody who's selected for a chief, you always will be part of that story. And that includes if you're a guy who runs into gunfire to hold open the way for his brothers. Right. And those are obviously pretty personal examples for my community. I am certain that with, less than five seconds thought you could come up with correspondent stories from yours. Yeah, dude. 100%. Um, and, the, and privilege responsibility. Sure. One of the weird responsibilities that you have, that's, I don't think it's necessarily specifically addressed. You don't get to stop growing because you, you, you know, you're wearing brass. Yeah. Right. Like, and I think there's a, that happens a lot. I yeah, think it's, a, yeah. The, it's a the, huge motivation for why I continue to do this podcast is like there's you know, a, the feeling that I've arrived and it's like that, you, like the growing stops because, well, I'm wearing anchors now. So like everything's been validated and I'm good. And yeah. now I'm the fountain of wisdom, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, uh-uh, and, no, and so <laughs> you need to continue to grow as a person. You need to find, continue to find balance. You need to find like personal balance in terms of like yoga. You need to maintain your physical fitness and be better and try to be better at least. Like, hey, it's understood. We're, you shouldn't be, generally speaking, you're not going to be a chief before you're in your late 20s or early 30s, yeah. right? So yeah, your body is going to start to have broken, like well, hopefully not too much, but will start to have broken down just by nature of the, the, the physical hardship of the job that we undertake, right? Right. So you're not going to be as in good a shape as the 17-year-old dude who was running cross country for his, his school at state, you know, three months before he joined the Navy. Right. Right. Cool. That's fine. But you should be still working on it. You also need to still maintain your technical acumen. And that's a weird responsibility that I think a lot of dudes kind of just completely drop. They're like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm a chief now. Like my job is, is evals and administration. And like, no, you need to actually yeah. stay up on your rate, right? <laughs> like it's in, it's in our little pseudo creed. We just thought we just wrote a few minutes ago. Okay. You, you need to actually be technically capable. Like, yeah. do you need to be that super troubleshooter? No. The additional privilege that you have that, that I, I think kind of 
you know, it, it's not it's not necessarily like a it's not as philosophical as kind of the other privileges that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But you know, you have a right and to a certain extent a duty to expect to be treated as a chief petty officer, right? And it kind of goes with that that development and leadership thing. You know, you are a military leader. Yeah. And so you need to maintain that separation, but you also have a right to expect that, you know, even if I was your buddy a year, you know, three months ago and you went on deployment and made chief and I came, I went on deployment, I didn't. Mm -hmm. If it's just you and me in a room, you can still be Jack and I can still be Bob. Right. But outside, out on, out in the fricking, the, the, the deck plates, I better be calling you chief. Yeah. And you have that expectation and you need to be doing that with your young junior guys as well. But I think that's one of the places where you, you sometimes see a real fall down is guys. They don't like they, they can handle being a chief for people that never, that never knew them before they were. A chief. Yeah. Yeah. But they have a real hard time being chief with the guy that maybe they think should have made it along with them. Maybe the guy that they think should have made it instead of them. You know? Yeah. And I don't know, man, like I so I look at res- the responsibilities and privileges as uh, they're it's they're the same thing vastly, mm-hmm. like the vast majority of any because I, like I don't think I have any actual privileges that most people would define as privileges associated with chiefs. Like, I don't think any of those yeah. things are real. And no, we've I, talked I, about that already. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of that's just. Uh, I, I, and it's a problem in every service. I think yeah. that, you know, you, you'll just have this sort of accumulation of power and weight, yeah. sometimes literal, uh, that, <laughs> that, and, and guys will just get to this place where they, they will expect to be treated that way. I mean, yeah, I think that we can, when, when we get around to it, maybe we'll, we'll talk a little bit about Master Chief Giordano and kind of what was going on there briefly without delving deep into it. Right. And, but, but you to know, get, to get, to address what you said about, um, the, like a guy that makes chief or a girl that makes chief and is still kind of amongst the same peers and has trouble with those relationships. It's like, I did that. I was on her Majesty's ship and, and made chief after spending a year as the LPO and had a lot of relationships established. I was living with two other first class LPOs. And when I made chief, it was like I moved into a one bedroom apartment and I obviously didn't hang out with those guys outside of work anymore, but Outside of that, it was like a lot of the relationships didn't change much, except they called me chief. And that was almost it. It was like, yeah, a lot of times you hear that. Oh, you're different now because you made chief, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I kind of went out of my way to not be different now. Obviously, there are things that change a little, but it's like, and there there may be largely it's largely the relationships don't change professionally that much. I there And there could be some angst with like somebody that's a really good friend, but like, I would still go like into radio and talk to my buddy and like mm-hmm. the guy, one of the guys that I lived with and it behind that closed door when it was just me and him, it was me and him. And we would talk yeah. like friends because we were friends, but there was that line that had to be maintained outside of work and everything else. And, and mm-hmm. we did that pretty effortlessly and didn't have any issues with it. And so I don't, I didn't feel like it was that big of a challenge and maybe it was just me. I, I like, I, it was easier for me to do for some reason, but like, I feel like if you're not falling into that trap of fake it till you make it as a chief where you think you got to behave a certain way and do certain things and act like act as if you're playing a chief on TV instead of just being a good leader. I don't feel like you're going to run into many of those roadblocks, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I, I think that's true. I think it might also be like a little bit of a, a somewhat of a, a, a roadblock that I've seen happen a few times in my community in particular, because we tend yeah. to be on a first name basis right. all the time, which is fair. Right. And yeah. So, all right. Last, um, last really yeah. big topic shift, which this yep. is the one yep. that yep. I feel like I de- There's a lot of stuff I want to talk about it in relation to the question, but mm-hmm. it's like, it's the differences between a chief and other services, E sevens. Right. And mm-hmm. the, for those that don't know, and if you don't, you should an air force E seven is a chief master sergeant at uh, the slide uh, deck. Uh, master, the, yeah. Master sergeant. It, it's in the air force. It's a chief master. Oh, I'm, chief. I'm, I'm an idiot. I'm thinking about E nines for some reason. You right. Master yeah. Sergeant. I was gonna Armies, say my, my grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason I brain farted and I because I interacted with a lot of E9s when I was yeah. an SEL and I was yeah, sorry. So Air Force, it's a master sergeant, army is a sergeant first class. The Coast Guard is a chief petty officer just like us, as we talked about earlier. They're modeled after the way we do things. And then the Marine Corps is a gunnery sergeant. So yep. I to to me, I like I'm like, there isn't one. Like there is no difference. I understand that. They don't go through initiation with the exception of the Coast Guard. And there are exceptions to even the rule of other NCOs and other services where you'll see a master sergeant in the Air Force or uh, Marine Corps gunnies are probably the most common because they Mm -hmm. serve with corpsmen and that'll put them through the season, blah, blah, blah. So they'll go through and be accepted chiefs. Like, And you'll see, I shared a picture a couple years ago of an Air Force master sergeant that had done it. And there's a whole bunch of grief that he got from a chief's group about, oh, he's not a real chief. And I was just like, come on, man. Like, stop. I cannot possibly imagine (laughs) the that... Good a, grief! A, a chief Facebook group. I'm gonna presume, I, yeah, you yeah. know, would have to sit there and like, and again, again, this is personal bias here. Maybe make the presumption that the chiefs that accepted him, ha, yeah, had some idea what they were doing. Yeah, maybe, yeah. possibly, like, but <laughs> like, because you you accepted that you you didn't have any issue with them accepting all the other chiefs on that same final night and six week initiation process. So why is it different? Because he was in the air force. Oh, cause chair force. Right. Man. Right. Screw, well, yeah. Screw and you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it Sorry. Blew my mind. But so I got a little fired up as well. So I, yeah. I understand, but yeah, I, in my interactions with, and I've had a lot of them. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think there is a giant difference where it matters, if that makes yeah. sense. And so like, with the leadership development and education, the experiences they go through, the the responsibilities they have, like I, I, I walk into an office and talk to a gunnery sergeant, and I felt like I was talking to a chief. I'd walk yeah. into an office talking to a master sergeant. I thought I was talking to a chief. It's just I don't understand why this is a conversation that. I, and it's like maybe I'm I might be misinterpreting it a little bit. No, I, I don't think you are, because that's the that is definitely the context it's set in. And every single time, you know, I've heard a hundred times, you know, anybody can be an E7, not anybody can be a chief or things like that. Right. Um, and, and that I, I think. Go ahead. Go sorry. ahead. Now, you, you finish your thought and then I'll tra- I'm going to transition to the basically what you just said of like, well, oh, that guy's not a chief. He's an E7. And we'll tackle that well, here in a second. I, I mean, and, and they, they'll, the, the specific context they'll usually be talking about it in his rank or is, is not is not like your your Navy E7. That's not a chief because there's no tree because yeah, yeah. because no tree chief. Right. Uh, the. 
the, the, you know, they'll be talking about, you know, they'll talk about other services that way. Now, I actually think that there's a certain degree to which the other services might do a little bit better than us on certain things. Yeah. In terms of the way they develop their, uh, certainly the fact that all three of the ground services, for lack of a better term, the Army, the Air Force, and the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. you make chief or E7, you have a in-person, fairly lengthy, uh, not run by your command, yeah, like, you know, full-time, in-residence school that you will go to. Well, almost that, every pay grade has that. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, they, they do they, they, a they, way yeah, better they, job. Yeah, but I mean, like, like, look. Yeah. I, I, I understand, you know, we have enough different sort of mini services within the U.S. Navy that I don't know that having a single unified, you know, CPO academy that's that, that, that all chiefs would go to for, for a given area is necessarily the right answer in and of itself, right? Because the expectations of a guy who's going to go be a platoon chief at an EOD command or a, or, or a SEAL platoon LPO uh, are not yeah. the same as the dude that's going to be CSC in a submarine. I don't think it but, should be that way. I think that like, and I want to say the army does it this way where it's like the training centers for certain specialties. Cause like yeah. the, when I was at Fort Lee, it was ordinance and logistics. Yep. They had no, an NCO Academy for ordinance and logistics. Yeah. Yeah. And if so it's like, this is kind of the same thing. If, yeah. If you're a special forces Sergeant first class or master Sergeant, you go to Fort, you go to mama Bragg. Yeah. And you go and you do your in-residence PME there. Right. The Marine Corps, uh, they do it They do it unified, but I think that's more reflective of their more unified service yeah, culture. Yeah, the way that – yeah, they're structured. Uh, and then the Air Force, you know, the Air Force, you do it at your base because every mm-hmm. base yeah. has one. has an airman – yeah, airman yeah, leader has, program, has, yeah. Air, yeah, it's, it's called the NC – it's literally, the, you know, NCO or Airman Leadership Academy, mm-hmm. right, for Peterson Air Force Base or yeah. Hill yeah. Air Force Base or whatever. But the thing is that because Air Force bases, by and large, you know, like so Pete, as an example, is my hometown Air Force base. Mm-hmm. You know, it's where U.S. Space Command is. It's where U.S. Northern Command is. Yeah. And then there's like two C-130 squadrons. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you, you have a pretty effectively unified culture right. in terms of like what they're, you know, and there's a whole bunch of space satellite squadrons. Right. Yeah. So, you know, they're already going to be learning. Uh, you know, they're already going to be fairly unified from the get. And they'll get a little bit of broadening from the presence of the, the C-130 load masters and maintainers. Uh, same thing for like Malmstrom Air Force Base up in uh, Mont- up in Montana. Right. It's all strategic missiles. That's, that's yeah. like, like strategic missiles, security forces and uh, missile maintainers. That's all that's there. So, again, you know, th- there's going to be a little bit of breadth, but it's still going to be kind of focused organizationally on the folks that ne- really need to learn that and and are really that, that not really need to learn that that really uh you know th- it's going to be specifically focused on you know the challenges of leading nuclear missile maintainers right because that's a extremely challenging job where there's all kinds of restrictions on security which would going to be very different from you know the job of guys that are say per rescue men where you're right. basically dealing with lead and seals Right. And so like that's a totally different leadership proposition in that it's, it's much more kind of type A, everybody's aggressive all the time in special warfare and special operations versus other elements of the military yeah. that are a little bit less so. 
Yeah, but, and to to be fair, I, I always caveat this when I talk about the differences between how we're doing things. Mm-hmm. NLEC, it's the Navy Leadership and Ethics Center, is standing mm-hmm. up the enlisted leadership development curriculum. It's happening where you'll see facilitators getting trained at fleet concentration areas so that when all of these uh, beginner, intermediate, advanced leadership courses in the CPO leadership course will be will be facilitated by qualified facilitators in that area. You yep. you you will leave your command. You will go to a brick and mortar classroom somewhere in some building and learn those courses. So that that's happening. It's not even close to being self sufficient navy wide yet. But yeah, I it's mean, a I thing. A, They're trying. I, I, I was tried around to, for when we killed Navlead. Like I went yeah, to Navlead. So courses, was I. I went you know. to the Work Center Soup course. Yeah, same. Yep. It was great. It was yeah, it was I loved legi- it. legitimately some of the best leadership training I've had in the Navy. Yeah. Right. And like we have those same resources there. Like I've met, you know, the fleet master chief. He's like the Navy. I think he is that he was the end like fleet master chief for a while. Really smart yeah. dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, so so the thing that, you know, like the, the, the comparison I always make is uh, you take a chief. There's a good chance for three to five years prior to the day that he pinned on his anchors, he has not been as heavily involved in his ratings job as he was when he was a fresh first or a second class, right? Yeah. You take a sergeant first class who's a platoon sergeant for an army infantry platoon or big smoke from our, from an arty battery, like that dude, not only is he in some ways having – a, a greater leadership challenge in that it's combat leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he might be having to rally people while they're getting shot at. Yeah. Okay. But he has to be an absolute master of his trade because his role in that platoon is in part, if the sir gets shot, he is now yeah. the platoon leader. Yeah. Right. And by the way, he's training that guy on how to be an infantryman right. or an artilleryman. And so it's always struck me as being this like incredibly, incredibly uh, unnecessarily cocky and ridiculous statement that that implies that Navy chiefs are inherently better. Yeah. Right. The biggest difference is that. Uh, and it's the biggest difference, especially when we're talking about Air Force, Army and Marine Corps. And I can't speak to the Coast Guard because I've only ever worked with you know, a few Coasties who were all their kind of special operations dudes who had much closer organizational culture to NSW than they did to the larger Coast Guard, right? They identify more with their unit and with their sort of branch within their their job than they do with the larger rank organization. Uh, By and large, a chief submariner a chief surface sailor, a chief aviation maintainer, um, they will most strongly identify if you force them to rank their identities within the military above and beyond anything else. Most of them, I think, would identify as Navy chiefs and then their respective warfare area and then their respective rating and then their respective sailor. Maybe you can swap warfare area and sailor, but I think that for me, like if I was to sit there and I, I think you I, like if uh, for you, I think it's sailor, submariner, senior chief, CS is, is kind Probably. of where I kind of, you know, where, where I see you kind of ranking it out. Right. Because your identity as a submariner is deeply important to you. 
just yeah. the way I, I, I've heard you talk about it, right? I know a lot of chiefs that I know chief submariners who, for them, it's even though, you know, I'm, I'm about to sit there and kind of make fun of you by proxy, you know, <laughs> their, their, their life may be wrapped in challenge coins and heritage anchors. Like they are that that's that's what their their biggest, most important thing is, you know, that yeah. they don't have a giant set of fish on the back window of their you know Toyota Tundra. They have a giant anchor. <laughs> right. Yeah. OK. And so Navy chiefs are much more willing to sublimate both their identity and their function into the mess than, say, an Army infantry sergeant first class would be or an, a Marine infantry gunny would be. Now, the Marines have their weird split that they do where some of them go off and become leaders and some of them go off and become, you know, technical gods within their their respective field that are also leaders. Yeah. Uh, but the like and then the same thing for the Air Force, where the Air Force, you have chief master sergeants that they're not first sergeants and they've never been first sergeants. They are an E9. They, they're in a leadership position because you can't not be in you can't be a nine and not be a leader. Right. But you're not a command you're not a, a squadron yeah, uh, yeah. chief or chief master sergeant, right? Yeah. Like, you know, your job is to be uh, like they call it a squadron superintendent, um, which is a weird one to me. Yeah. Uh, they they sit there and they they might be like the ultimate frick, you know, operator or the ultimate like stealth aircraft maintainer mm-hmm. and actually be that ask the chief is a literal thing, right? Like yeah. in, in almost a more literal way. Uh and, you know, yeah, I, I mean, we just we already have hit it with the Coast Guard. Messes have reciprocity. Uh, a Coast Guard chief is, will not a, a Navy. I, I, I think you'd be you would you would probably be pretty hard pressed to find a Navy chief that would be willing to tell a Coast Guard chief wearing anchors that they weren't a real chief. Yeah, I like I'd and, be shocked so, if it happens. And it'd probably be some clown that doesn't understand the the yeah. parody there that it's yeah. like it's the same thing, man. Like, yeah. But I mean, again, I think that our leadership has our, our methods of leadership have something to offer. And that I do know, you know, folks that envy our love for tradition and they, they do right. envy that the, the, the concept of a chief's mess as a unified you know group of people and the physical concept of the chief's mess is having this idea of this place where you can go and eat with your peers right right? but then if you gave them a choice between having a chief's mess where they could go and eat with their peers and being able to eat with their people no question people they're eating with their people and that's something that i like i feel like a lot of like there's a lot of things to envy. Like I get it. There's a lot of things that having seen other service NCOs go through the chief season that when you talk to them afterwards, there's like this really fierce sense of belonging and loyalty to the organization and like just a deep sense of meaning that comes along with all that tradition and heritage stuff. But then that, and it's almost like that kind of stuff. That's the important stuff. The stuff we, we champion during the season is the important stuff. And then it's like kind of when you get back into the daily grind, I feel like we get away from that to the point where you end up doing things that are counterproductive, like eating separate from your people and creating artificial boundaries that don't need to exist. And you based on stupid privileges that we've invented, like the parking thing and like the other like head of the line privileges for chow just melts my brain. But it's like the here, here's, here's one. I mean, for me that I I have always kind of questioned, Mm -hmm. why do we have an E7 and above area in a shore galley? I have no idea. 
like like on my galley at NAB Coronado, there is. I almost never sit there. If that makes uh, yeah. you feel. Oh yeah, no. Mo- most of my chiefs don't either. <laughs> I go like, sit down what, with an E five and a, what's up, man? Like, how you doing? Where are you from? Like, <laughs> what what I have seen chiefs do more often than anything else is, uh, you know, my my chiefs that I like and respect, right? That I've worked with, is they will look at the table where their people are sitting and they will see the missing condiments and they'll look over in the chief section. I go take them and out see of there. <laughs> that the chiefs con- every chief's table has every condiment yeah. and they'll be like hey does anybody want anything you want some sriracha you want some green tabasco you want some yeah tabasco? cool <laughs> go i'm going to <laughs> be right back and they'll get a dirty look from some dude that's sitting I in dare there you like to say something yeah <laughs> you know right and it's that's just sort funny. of like i understand i can understand the concept of the chief's mess on like his surface combat because usually a lot of times the chief's mess in terms of the galley area is directly adjoining the birthing is, you know, and it's sort of like, you know, even that though, like I, I understand having an area to gather for meetings. Oh, I mean, I I like that. Like I I, I think separate eating area. I don't understand. I I think that what it should be, should be that they should have some coffee pots. Yeah. Maybe like like a dunk or like, just like, like like a little freaking pop tarts or house run, house run dunk. And maybe, you know, that maybe like the FSAs bring up like, like whatever snack stuff is laid out in the galley, like for grab and go type stuff, that yeah. would be about as far as I could see it going for it to be a place where, Hey, you know, you're getting your, Hey, you're, you're late getting up. Cause you were working crazy late the previous night. You can on your way out of the mess, rather than having to sit there and try to beg, borrow and steal from a CS is down there. You can grab that pop tart or that slice of bread with some peanut butter on it and in your coffee and then go back and hit it or you can have coffee with movie night or what the whatever you know yeah, yeah, yeah. like that that makes sense to me the having a separate full-on galley yeah less so and i mean what's funny about it is i actually have talked to surface surface fsas that they don't want the chief's mess galley to go away uh because i guess it's a thing in surface galleys that there's like a tip jar for FSS. Uh, that's that better not be real. Uh, um, like I don't think it is. I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible that it's happened or is maybe happening somewhere. That happening needs in a, limited circumstances and like needs to get cold, recalibrated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. But I mean, like literally, you know, I have God, that better with not they be. were like, that was a thing that there was a tip yeah. jar for the chief FSAs. And so, you know, when you're talking about an E2 or an E3, yeah, you know, and and the mess is maybe, you know, maybe each member of the mess throws in a dollar every couple of days. Well, it doesn't take a whole lot of that going That's on. so wrong. For them to be That's making. That's like ethically wrong. Like, well, I mean, that there's, you know, again, like there's a lot of stuff with that whole concept where it used to be that the chiefs could sit there and take their money and buy their own. Yeah, food. no, that I understand. But, it's, you know, yeah, like, you still should like, be. I mean, because oh no, like. You. On submarines, we we it's like you effectively use CPOA funds and we furnish our own like snack locker. So like basically what you described, but we get our own stuff because most yeah, of the yeah. stuff that you can get on the boat isn't what we want. So we just yeah, go buy all our own crap. And no, no, I'm not talking about yeah. that. So it used to be. No, that, I'm with like, you. you oh, mess, yeah, yeah, yeah. General mess funds were used to like they would they would get money. That was yeah. effectively their BAS and they would go yep. buy whatever they want and yep. make their own menu. Yeah. No, yeah, I remember I, I remember when that ended. It was yep. it was like and it was like I remember reading about it maybe times like that was a thing. Yeah, oh yeah. Like Pri- private messes. Know. Yeah, private yeah. messes. 
and and that I think you know there's justification for that to exist both from a you know personal privilege perspective. I mean the wardroom has that like nobody's nobody's mad. I don't I and that's that's such a weird thing because I know very few sailors who are mad at the wardroom for existing. Right. They're, you know. But I think there's. But but I think that it's I think oh, it's because yeah. there's a perception of you're an enlisted dude. Yeah. Like you didn't go to the Naval Academy. Right. You, there's you a know more, how screwed up this is. There's a more like, clearly delineated line and mm-hmm. separation that I think is a lot more functionally necessary between officers and enlisted than it is between chiefs and junior enlisted. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'll be honest, I have I have some certain questions about some of the utility on on on, on how much that is still necessary in the 21st century myself. Yeah, but that's I think that's I more can tell you. Of, I- like a lot of times, so the baby ensign chop that I had, the supply officer yeah. for the for the I say chop like everybody knows what that means. Mm-hmm. Apparently, apparently, it's only a submarine thing, but that's what yeah, we call it. I, I ran into that as well. Yeah, that's like, what we. What's what's going on, chop? And I yeah, and the that? dude looked at me like like I I because uh, he was surface dude and he thought right, that I right, was right. saying something insulting and something bad. Like, yeah, no, like and what's hilarious is every like chop that I've had, which is a supply officer on submarines that does a tour with submariners and then goes to the service community. They all like, Oh, I mean, wish everybody would call me chop. I miss it. You know? Like, but yeah, one of the things that she had, like, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that she would always do is she, she hated going in the wardroom because of like the formality and she was the the junior officer. So she would always get grilled by everybody. And, she would like hide in the corner on the mess decks, like over by the drink line. There was this weird little puka right by the galley and she'd be like, give me a plate. <laughs> like She would just hide back there and eat her food because she didn't want to go in there anyway. So it's like hey, most hey, of bro, them, you, most of the JOs to... don't want to go in there anyway. So oh, for sure. Yeah. You're going to have to explain puka as well. I discovered oh, it's the like hard a way little... that puka is not a, a word <laughs> outside that of submarine. Every... Okay. Nope. I guess that's not an everywhere word. So puka is like a little, like a little random area or void where so you can go put a thing or a person, you can go hide and like, it's just like a little, just like a little off to the side area, if that makes sense. But yeah. All right. Let's shift to the last real question that I've got left before we wrap things up, man. It's, it's the talking about the difference between a chief and an E7. And I'm not, this is like shifting from the focus on the other services. And when, when someone says like, Oh, that guy's not a chief. He's an E7. Like, what does that mean? And kind of like, we've talked about it before and we both kind of agree on like that. We, we have the same viewpoint on it, but talk about that a little bit. So I have a really simple view of it in some ways, which is to say, that person is wearing the same uniform as you. He's wearing the same insignia as you. Right. If you ran into a sailor that was not calling him chief mm-hmm. and you didn't correct it, you are as profoundly wrong as you could be. And and we're and in this specific context, I'm talking about back. This is less. This is less of a thing now. But you know, mm-hmm. a chief that elected to not go through an or an E7 yeah, that optional. didn't go through initiation. It's no longer optional, right? right. But going back to, you know, what it is now, typically you'll hear it like it'll be used as an excuse. That guy's not a real chief. He's an E7. Like he's just an E7. Screw that noise, man. Okay. Just just like we were talking about when we talked about the privileges that you carry and the responsibilities that you carry uh, as a chief petty officer, you are carrying his that is screwing you over and sapping your credibility. And you're not solving anything by sitting there and saying he's not a chief. You don't remove any of his weight from your shoulders by saying that. 
The way you remove his weight is either if he's really bad enough, helping to get him into a new job, okay, that's not responsible for sailors, or helping him to meet the requirements and meet the standard that you have organizationally set. All promotions, you know, yeah, we can talk about initiation and acceptance all you want, but at the end of the day, the promotion authority is not 15 chiefs sitting in a booth. The promotion authority is the Congress and the President of the United States. Uh, by way, of, by, you know, by way, of the Secretary of the Navy, as advised by the E7 Selection Board. Right. Okay. You can pretend all day long that, like, the most important part of the process and the most important part of the forming process of making that person into a finished chief petty officer absolutely is initiation and acceptance. Like, I will, I'll stipulate to that. I have. I have my skepticism, but I have seen it happen where a dude yeah. rolled in and was just like, no, that dude will never be a chief and came out. And I was like, yeah, he's he's a chief now. He's like a real, real chief, sometimes maybe too much of a chief. But, you know, <laughs> you don't have that authority, chief. And you're you're hitting it on the head when you say like that you don't have the authority, but it, more in the way that the way that I look at it is it's like. If you arrive at a point where you're at an acceptance event, which that it's it's a symbolic event to end the capstone experience of initiation. Mm -hmm. So when you get to that symbolic event, if you're taking it literally and you're telling a selectee that they're not ready to be accepted because of some failure of theirs, you're shirking the responsibility just like you are when you say, oh, that guy's not a chief. He's an E7 because of some behavior or some failure to perform or whatever. It's like you failed. If you get to that acceptance yep. symbolic moment and they're not ready to be accepted, you failed as a leader. The mess failed as an organization. Yep. And all of the burden of that is on us for not getting them ready. Uh, there's and like, yes, and now it's tiny time bit to correct of, it. Right. Yeah. And there's a tiny bit of personal accountability, as always, like that a grown adult is making grown adult decisions. But a lot of times it's a failure in leadership almost universally. And, and, the same thing happens like what you just described when you're pointing at a chief that, oh, that guy just doesn't get it. That guy's an E7. It's like that's you're demonstrating the traits of the supposed E7 by shirking the responsibility of 100%. fixing that, fixing that problem. Like you can't just say that and then walk off and let that problem fester because that say, that chief or E7, quote unquote, that you pointed at is a chief to the E3 that he's going to interact with in five minutes. So it's like it's it's we're past the point of saying like that, that that's not our problem because they're wearing our uniform to work every day. It's like that's a chief to everyone else except you and the person you just told that. And so it's like you got to fix that. You have to take accountability for the fact that that wart exists. Like, go fix it. Yeah. I mean, the dude's not wearing a seven on his yeah. tab instead of an anchor and right. an anchor with a, a, foul, a fouled anchor with superimposed USN, man. Like, that's, yeah, Sorry. It's just not how you that know, works. Yeah, maybe, maybe, uh, and and if you really think that dude's not a chief, like you really truly think that dude's not a chief, then chances are that dude's doing something that's wrong. Wrong. It's not. Yeah, and document it and have accountability. Fix that. Yeah, <laughs> like, and, and yeah. either get him to get him to become a chief, or get him to not be a chief anymore. Right. Right. But don't sit there and play for ten games that he's not a chief because him being the same thing as you makes you uncomfortable, but not uncomfortable enough to actually fix the problem. Right. 
Right. Like, it's... and I know we're, we're, we're sitting there and they're like, Hey, yeah, senior and Dan on the same page. But I mean, <laughs> it, it, it really does bother me because it's just, you know, I've heard it from guys that I really respect. And like, sometimes it's usually coming in the context of a story, right? Like the, the, yeah. the story I told about my two chiefs that I had, this matters. It, it has an impact long-term on your brothers, your sisters as chiefs and as sailors and on the sons and daughters of America that are given to us for their care and on our station in the world. And I think it's worth a moment or two of reflection about what your actions might do in any given day in any foreign country to reflect what they're going to think of America and American sailors. Me singing the submarine song at karaoke when I was a 20, <laughs> drunk 22-year-old in Brisbane probably didn't do a whole lot of favors to perceptions of U.S. service members either. Probably not. <laughs> That's for oh, going you're on, good, so man. Uh, so we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. All right. Uh, in summary, as always, I'm going to re-emphasize the excerpt that we focus on from the Creed for this lesson. By experience, by performance, and by testing, you have advanced to Chief Petty Officer in the United States Navy and only in the United States Navy. The rank of E7 carries with it unique responsibilities and privileges you are expected to fulfill and bound to observe. Your entire way of life has changed. More will be expected of you and more will be demanded of you. Not because you are an E7, but because you are now a Chief Petty Officer. So there's a lot there and we dissected it in depth during the lesson plan. But the the big thing that I, I want to focus on here is that by experience, by performance, and by testing, you have advanced to Chief Petty Officer. So it's explaining your path to that point. Your experience, however long and however varied, are incredibly important. By performance, and make sure you read between the lines there and understand that that is by the performance of the sailors that you led up to that point. Some of that obviously is your individual performance, but the majority of it is your performance as a leader. And then by testing, not just the written bubbling in of a Scantron, but also your testing through adversity and challenges in leadership positions, you have been advanced to chief petty officer. Your entire way of life has changed. And it's that's a powerful line that I think gets glossed over a little bit. Everything has changed is something that I write in a lot of charge books. It's not about you anymore. It's something you will hear throughout the entire season. And a lot of the way the advancement system is set up is for it to be focused on your individual achievements up to this point. And then all of a sudden, that's flipped completely upside down. And it's all about everyone else. You are evaluated on the performance of your charges. More will be expected of you and more will be demanded of you because you're a chief. There is a default expectation that those things that don't appear in print or file are you going above and beyond? And if you if you haven't already listened to it, go back to the spin the yarn that I did associated with teaching to the creed called a short talk with chief petty officers. If you have any question about what I mean by that, your definition of your duties and responsibilities as a chief petty officer should be applied extremely liberally. And you are a chief on the ship all the time. Again, if you don't know what I'm what I'm talking about, go back and listen to a short talk with Chief Petty Officers. It's incredible from the Blue Jackets manual in the early 1900s. With that, if you need anything from us, hit us up. Don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us. Don't give up the ship podcast. Or you can DM us on Instagram or Reddit at DGS podcast or get on the sub DGS podcast. Uh, get in the discussion board. 
let us know what you think. Give us feedback. Anything, anything you can do to let us know how, how we're doing, ask questions, ask us for help with something, whatever, whether it's chief season related, teaching the creed related, but specifically feedback on how you think we did and how we can improve upon the process of this supplement set of podcasts. I'm really curious to see how they're received and also just anything you can tell us that, that will help us make it better. I'm all in and I'm standing by for that feedback. And then if you could like share, subscribe and review on all the platforms for all the things in both social media realm and podcasting, uh, it just helps the algorithms push it to the people that need it. It lets people know that the tool is available for them. Uh, and if they need that help to come utilize it because it's here and it's free <laughs> and that's why we do it. Uh, and that's it. That's what I got for you today. Thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship. <laughs>